Mocknav is an Irish word encompassing reflection, contemplation, meditation, and thought. And Mocknav 100 is an invitation from the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, for us all to join him in reflecting on those pivotal events of 100 years ago on this island, which we are commemorating during this decade of centenaries, their causes, their consequences, and the influence they might still have on our world today. This is the third session of Mocknav 100. It follows on from the inaugural Mocknav 100 event in December 2020, when we considered the nature of commemoration itself, and the second Mocknav 100 in February last, when we examined the nature of empire a century ago. Today's third Mocknav 100 event is entitled Recovering Imagined Futures, and will revisit the extraordinary summer of 1921, just 100 years ago, when it was not obvious to so many players in Irish life that Ireland was at a turning point in its history and that decisions would imminently be made which would determine the political shape of Ireland between then and today. Our title for this Mocknav is, as I've said, Recovering Imagined Futures, asking how was Ireland's future imagined in that summer of 1921? This will be considered by our speakers in terms of gender, class and land. I should perhaps emphasise that Mocknav 100 was originally designed as akin to a seminar in a public setting and with opportunities for public participation at the conclusion of papers by expert scholars. Because of COVID restrictions, Mocknav has been obliged to amend its format, retreat from a public forum with a live audience and assemble instead in the home of the president here in Oris on Uchtalan and extend its reach indeed outward to the world through this broadcast. Here, a positive point, its reach is all the greater since we are available on this broadcast worldwide, on the RTE player, the RTE news channel, and the president's website. Indeed, we would like to extend a special welcome to all viewers throughout the world who are joining us for this broadcast. A word on our format. We will begin with a welcome from President Higgins. Our keynote speaker will be Dr. Margaret O'Callaghan, whose paper is entitled Recovering Imagined Futures, and this will be followed by responses from four scholars, Katrina Crow, archivist, historian, broadcaster, Dr. John Cunningham, who has entitled his paper Recovering Imagined Futures, A Spirit of Revolution, query. Dr. Katrina Clear will speak on two case histories representing everyday life in the revolutionary era. And Professor Linda Connolly will speak on ethical commemoration, women and the Irish Revolution. Then we will hear the President Michael D. Higgins' paper of land, social class, gender and the sources of violence. Following this, I will share a general discussion on some of the central themes which have been raised. We're coming to you from the state reception room at Oris and Uchtaron, the home of every Irish president since 1938. And I now invite the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, to introduce today's third session of Mocknav 100. In choosing themes for today's Mocknav seminar, I was conscious that in the historiography of the 19th century, dominated as it was by the campaigns for emancipation, repeal, home rule, the anti-tithe movement, the underlying theme for all such campaigns carried the resonance of land, be it access to land, to security of tenure, response to changes in production, population pressure, it is always there. The vocabulary of Irish history in relation to land contains some of the most emotive terms in Irish memory, terms such as enclosure, occupation, settlement, plantation, 
eviction, improvements. Such resonating cries were all present in the discourse of the 19th century. It is in relation to land that the most harrowing of confrontations in rural Ireland occurred. They would include evictions and the response to them, rallies and actions of the land war, confrontations, boycotts, divisions, and attempts at an eventual alliance between agrarian agitation and parliamentary action, which would result in land acts that would utterly change Irish society. That change in status from insecure tenancy to proprietorship that the land acts facilitated had huge implications for those who worked on the land, be it in relation to the inheritance pattern of post-famine Ireland or the agricultural labourers. The position of rural women in Ireland would be changed, especially by the particular form of post-famine stem family inheritance arrangements that would emerge, as would women's participation in new patterns of emigration. Beyond particular incidents that were violent, I see in these adjustments, far from harmonious, an institutional source of violence, which an orientation in the historiography has led to its being not given significant account. While this gloss on events is mitigated to some extent by the fulsome accounts of the fusion late in the century of agrarian revolt with the parliamentary activity pursuing home rule, as exemplified, for example, by Charles Stuart Parnell and Michael Davitt. From the late 1880s, where the grazier phenomenon emerges and prevails, it foretells how new violences in structure are made possible. Each theme of the 19th century, be it land, social class, gender, retained a unique capacity for the folk memory to recall experiences of outrage related to specific places and events. Beyond that, in so many aspects of the brutality known to occur in later conflict, these tensions can be identified in form and inclination in an intensified, indeed often escalated and conjoined form, such as in the atrocities of the War of Independence, and in particular, Ireland's tragic civil war. The land is always there as an unresolved issue. Lawrence J. Kettle, when publishing the memoirs of Andrew J. Kettle, right-hand man to Charles Stuart Parnell, in 1958, put on the jacket of that memoir, Fintan Lawler's remark, that the land question contains, and the legislative question does not contain, the material from which victory is manufactured. While the usage of land changed, and did so profoundly and with consequences in the 19th century in Ireland, there never could be enough land for all who sought it, then or later. Its fixity and supply would influence both society and its conflicts. There is nothing uniquely Irish in any of this. Land, of course, is an informing theme in violence in classical and later European literature, be it contemporary or recalled. Conflict over land is not unique to Ireland. The conflicts and violences associated with it and within it are, after all, not only a staple in European literature, but in global myth. Such structural violences in relation to land, however, cannot be understood solely in analysis of disputes as to ownership. The different forms and possibilities of ownership mattered. Modes of living 
and production were important. What life changes were allowed, limited or defined, within homesteads or patches of land, carry their own institutional significance, including familial and class prescriptions and proscriptions that could be violent in their imposition. Today, to discuss such themes among those themes they have chosen themselves, we are fortunate to have with us, for this Machner third seminar, distinguished scholars. The principal address will be given by Dr. Margaret O'Callaghan, Queen's University, Belfast, and respondents will be Dr. Katrina Clear, National University of Ireland, Galway, Professor Linda Connolly, National University of Ireland, Maynooth, Ms. Katrina Crow, Royal Irish Academy, and Dr. John Cunningham, National University of Ireland, Galway. May I again most sincerely thank Dr. John Bowman, historian and broadcaster, for agreeing to chair today's seminar, having fulfilled such a role for us already by chairing with such excellence our previous two Mochnev seminars in February this year and last December. Our inaugural seminar held in December 2020 examined the nature and concept of commemoration itself in the context of today and of the national and global events of a century ago. Speakers included Professors Kiron Benson, Anne Dolan, Michael Laffin, Joop Learson, and together we set out our intentions for what we are hoping to achieve from this series. In February of this year, I hosted a second seminar which focused inter alia on empire, imperial attitudes and responses as they related to circumstances in Ireland. Our reflections included a consideration of the forms and practices of resistance to empire in Ireland, as well as resistance to nationalism in its different forms and expressions. The main reflection was given by Professor John Horne, Trinity College Dublin, who provided an overview of the international context of the events in 1920s Ireland including the fall of empires and the particular status of the British Empire. There were responses from Professor Eunan O'Halpin, Trinity College Dublin, Dr. Mary Coleman, Queen's University Belfast, Professor Alvin Jackson, University of Edinburgh, Dr. Neve Gallagher, St. Catherine's College, Cambridge, and myself. The point in our commemorative programme at which we have now arrived is one where we must confront, acknowledge, and come to terms with difficult aspects of what were the informing elements of context of the independence struggle, including a consideration of the forms and sources of violence that emerged, were given expression, including the gradations of violence that were inflicted on women. Other forms of violence were class-based and deeply embedded. Some forms of violence were carried out more generally and impacted on wider society, such as those that were authoritarian, hostile to pluralism, dominating, or collusive to the impersonal structures of bureaucracy being imposed as a sole and inevitable modernity. The aftershocks of which have been felt up to and including our contemporary Ireland. I hope you'll find today's seminar interesting, thought-provoking, perhaps even a further reminder of the value of transacting history. Fortier Ovilliac. Our keynote speaker is Dr. Margaret O'Callaghan, reader in history and politics at Queen's University, Belfast. She's written on the troubles of women and politics in Ireland since 1921, the political thought of Roger Casement, on commemoration itself and on the history of partition. Her keynote paper is Recovering Imagined Futures. Dr. Margaret O'Callaghan. Uchthron, fellow speakers, uh, Dr. Bowman, 
Thank you for that introduction. It's a great honour to be asked to participate in Machnav, a Gurmila Mahagat Uchthrum. I've been asked by the President to reflect upon the idea of recovering imagined futures in the Irish independence struggle and its historiography from the perspective of the summer, that important summer of 1921. We know what happened after that date, that summer of the truce then, but the protagonists at the time did not. They did not have our perspective. My colleagues will reflect on hope, class and gender, on labour, land and longing, and on freedom as personal for women's participation and purpose. I'm going to look backwards from that crucial summer of 1921 and to reflect on some futures imagined in the decades before it and during it. In June 1921, King George V opened the Parliament of Northern Ireland and a month later, the military truce of July 1921 opened the way for the end of the British-Irish War of the previous two years. Settlement talks between Britain and Doyle representatives were anticipated all through that summer, right up to October. What possible futures beckoned? Looking back at that summer of 1921, the key shape I think we need to keep in mind is that British policy had already put in place an entity called Northern Ireland. This was prior to any ceasefire, prior to talks, prior to a future agenda with the rest of Ireland. Eamon de Valera and Michael Collins, Arthur Griffith and William T. Cosgrave, countless volunteers in the field, are preoccupied in that summer by the hope of an imminent, as they see it, All-Ireland settlement. But British policy has already put in place the reality of a new six-county Northern Ireland. It would take a very brave man, as Edward Carson said to Boner Law, to take away Ulster's Parliament once it had it. At the British Cabinet table, the discussion is of a war to the death in Ireland or of a settlement. So the stakes are high in that summer and the preference on the British side is for a settlement. As Ronan Fanning quoted Arthur Balfour in that summer of 1921, we've made our Irish policy on all fours with our European policy of self-determination and which no American can say is unfair. That was the nub of it. American and international opinion of Great Britain could be satisfied by the structures put in place by the Government of Ireland Act of 1920. In foreign policy terms, that mattered to London. International horror at reprisals in Ireland was deeply embarrassing internationally. But if a coherent narrative of respective self-determinations on the island of Ireland could be told externally, particularly in the United States by Britain, then the later choice articulated by Lord Lieutenant Fitzalan, now it must be peace or war and no fooling, could be made, dealing with the other part of Ireland. De Valera's push for an assault on the Custom House in May 1921 was part of his expectation of imminent talks, a costly one. 
It reflected his desire not to be presented in peace talks as guerrilla gunmen, as depicted by the British. Ernie O'Malley and other fighting men and women in pursuit of the Republic failed to see the scale of the meaning of the border until some of them fought on the ground in what became the territory of Northern Ireland over the following year or so. This year, the state and others are commemorating aspects of the Irish past of 100 years ago. But we must recognise that commemorations are traditionally used by states to glorify their origins. What is being attempted by the Irish state and separately, though relatedly, by the president is a more innovative approach, an attempt in this decade of centenaries to acknowledge the past in all its diversity and complexity while exploring and reflecting on a national narrative. The desire, too, is to show empathy to those who opposed what the state retrospectively recognises as the national revolution and to address the endless recurrence of division around partition as an issue in every generation. We remember, but we also forget. As Patrick Modiano in the novella recently published in English as Invisible Ink put it, we can't remember without forgetting. Social remembering or commemoration is always a process of negotiation in a society. No living person now actually remembers what happened in 1921. What we call our memory of it is a complex mixture of what we have read, what we have heard, how the social and community relations and media we are immersed in choose at a particular time to represent that past. Our memories are socially and culturally constructed. History aspires to be something different, an attempt to explain what happened and how and why it happened and to whom. This, of course, raises questions about where the historian is coming from, ideologically, and how their ideology informs their historiography. The particular history of the border drawn in Ireland by the British Imperial Government in the Government of Ireland Act 1920, the consequences of that divide, the Northern Troubles, the debate on Irish historical revisionism, reflections on the shared capital of Irish political and cultural nationalism since the 1970s. These and other considerations shape the framing of commemoration by government and by president today. Shaped by what those over a certain age have lived through and the historical cultural wars about commemoration since the 1970s, much of this is really not apparent for most people under a certain age in this society. Commemorations are easy for societies where the outcome of the past is not contested. But here, because of the fallout from partitions legacies, history is and has been the raw meat of politics and of our recent conflicts. It all relates back to the architecture put in place in that summer of 1921, when partition took place and a truce beckoned to settlement. The shape that commemorations take can tell us more about the contemporary society 
than it does about the past it seeks to evoke. The revelations about the treatment of women and children born to them outside marriage over the past decades, the waking the feminists movement arising out of rage at the Abbey Theatre's marginalization of women in commissioning plays in 2016, international developments. This decade of centenaries has had a focus unprecedented in previous commemorations on the role of women. The commemorative version of the past is always viewed through the rear view mirror of a future that did not exist and was unlived at the time of that past. In this case, the shadow of the treatment of women in independent Ireland. Social change in Ireland has been driven by women's issues over the last decades, and the need for that change came from the nature of the post-revolutionary society. That take from the present in commemoration or looking at 100 years ago was particularly evident in the 2019 RTE television series Resistance that dwelt at some length on the role of women in the revolution. Apart from placing women at the centre of the action, it addressed the pregnancy of one of the key figures while not married. It's inconceivable that the Irish media in 1966, the 50th anniversary of the rising, would have wanted to cover such issues. In the 1960s, James Connolly was the figure of the Republican left, or who the Republican left wished to focus upon, while more pious forces focused on a treacled, rather saintly version of Porrick Pierce. From a historian's point of view, trying to work out what actually happened at the time, Tom and Kathleen Clark might have been more captivating and revealing figures to focus upon. As we know from the Bureau of Military History and from the Pensions Archives, many fought in the Irish Revolution, but most people did not. No revolution in the world is so minutely documented. The revolutionary generation were brought up in the shadow of another revolutionary period, the revolutionary land war period from the early 1880s. This changed the ownership and class composition of rural Ireland. The providentialism of the Irish poor of the countryside has been seen as a consequence of famine trauma. The extraordinary rate of emigration, the social cessation of formerly common subdivision of rented land, the revolution in inheritance patterns, all combined to create a highly class-stratified rural community by the end of the 19th century, or I should say rural communities. The traditional Irish forms of Catholicism, common until the mid-century, around holy wells, places of pilgrimage, patterns and party wakes, have been ripped apart relentlessly and suppressed by the new monolithic and powerful Catholic Church after the famine particularly the un under the influence of Paul Cullen, Archbishop of Dublin. This was a church which acted as broker with the British state and by the end of the century, enforcer of a hyper-pious sexual morality. Victorian, but with its own coloration. Roger Casement, 
in the 1900s marked the time that John Redmond spent in the House of Commons negotiating the exclusion of certain conventual establishments, convents, from British state inspections. The Catholic Church was well structurally embedded with the prevailing structures of power in Ireland before independence. Meanwhile, to go back to the 80s and 1880s and 1890s, the seemingly endless pause on home rule and the unionist pause in resistance to it in the years after Gladstone, from 1893 onwards, created a new, more radicalised and impatient generation in Ireland. I teach a course in Queen's Belfast called The Politics of Irish Literature, and we read all of the radical writers of the 1880s, the 1890s, the 1900s. We read Joyce, Yeats, Hyde, Sigerson, Griffith. Uh, they're well worth reading and their ideas are extraordinarily interesting and often marginalised. Many of that generation were politicised during the anti-Boer War, anti-imperial protests and commemorations of the 1798 rebellion in 1898. <clears throat> I think my point is that 1916 was shaped by a small dedicated group who had a wider sympathetic cohort derived from those a decade older who'd waited for home rule for the decade since 1886. As the Tory project of killing home rule by kindness appeared to proceed apace, fear of a successful total absorption into a British imperial project, cultural no less than political, drove many of the key figures to revolution. And I think that's a really important point. Clearly, there would have been no British-Irish war from 1919 to 21 had 1916 not happened. It's also unlikely that anything other than the most restrictive form of home rule would have been on offer. Roger Casement wrote to his friend Alice Stopford Green in 1906 and 1907. He said he's convinced the Liberals never intend to facilitate home rule. Alice Green was the daughter and granddaughter of important figures in the Church of Ireland, a widow of the famous liberal British historian J.R. Green, and she was a key figure in the events of the years leading to revolution, and indeed afterwards. Eamon de Valera, when asked years later to recommend a history of Ireland, suggested that people read hers. Her books were best-selling, they were distributed through the Gaelic League, uh, in Ireland in the early 19-teens and into the 12s-13s. They countered the establishment histories of Ireland, mostly written by Unionist historians who endlessly iterated the Tory line that Ireland was not and never had been a nation except through English conquest. That seems scarcely believable today, but it was the daily mantra of engaged politics at the time. Stopford Green funded the School of Irish Studies in Dublin and paid for most of the guns in the host gun running. At a commemorative event for Casement in Casement Aerodrome in 2016, a speaker regretted Casement's involvement in Irish revolutionary politics. He felt that it undermined Casement's 
important work in Africa and South America and his efficacy as a model for NGOs in independent Ireland. I could not resist pointing out that there might not have been an independent Irish state to have an NGO policy uh, had uh, casement uh, but for him. In pushing for revolution, Casement said, Africa will still be Africa in a hundred years' time. But like those I've mentioned earlier, he and many of the revolutionaries felt that they were at a turning point. In saying that, he was expressing the fears of the core revolutionary group that Ireland was perhaps on the brink of being finally successfully integrated into the United Kingdom before the First World War. By the summer of 1921, as the new parliament was opened in Belfast, many of those who had reacted to the prospect of some kind of Ulster exclusion before the war were dead. Casement himself, hanged, who tried to organise an Ulster Protestant resistance to the idea of Ulster exclusion. Sean McDermott, the former Belfast tram conductor uh, with whom he had consorted in Belfast with Bulmer Hobson. As we know, all the signatories of the Rising were dead. So the truce came in that summer of 21 to a new leadership cadre who'd emerged since 16. The radical impulse that led to revolution had been started, arguably, by two young women, Alice Millican and Ethna Carberry, in their Belfast popular newspaper publication, The Shan Van Vocht. Started in 1896. All of the focus on history, and their argument was for independence by justification in history, that so drove the analysis of the revolutionaries was inscribed in their journal. Arthur Griffith took over their subscription list for his United Irishman newspaper, the popular print in which almost every active revolutionary was involved. James Stevens said there was nothing in Irish advanced nationalism with which Griffith was not involved before the First World War. Maud Gone part financed it. Everyone with radical politics in Ireland read Griffith's newspapers before the First War. Futures were imagined for Ireland before that war, but the imagined home rule future had been a receding reality until the Parliament Act of 1911. Liberals did not wish to introduce a Home Rule Bill for Ireland, as they made clear when they won power in 06. They legislated for Home Rule in 1911 only because the changed powers of the House of Lords, put in place for purely British reasons, mandated it, and they needed Redmond's votes to stay in power. Redmond got an unworkable bill only because Liberals needed his votes. That was not the fault of Redmond or the Irish party. It was simply the limit of their leverage. The scale of Ulster resistance and British support from it, from the Covenant onwards, made it clear that some accommodation for Ulster would be found. This is clear from the interventions of Churchill and Lloyd George from within the Cabinet, and from the actions of all levels of the Conservative Party and the British Army from the Curra episode onwards. 
the Buckingham Palace Conference around the pre-war home rule situation makes clear how limited the scale of home rule on offer was. But the summer of 1921 was when that unionist resistance came to fruition in the shape of a Northern Parliament. Revolution is a process, not a single event. Yeats in September 1916 asks, was it needless death after all? He reassumes his role as the national poet at Maud Gunn's prompting in the crucial use of the term our, our part to murmur name upon name as a mother names her child. In a sequence of poems, he reflects uneasily upon the transformative power of their actions. Images of Macdonough's bony thumb, the image of watering the rose tree, are presented as politically dynamic. Yeats was a political genius of a kind. He was not sure that he liked what had happened in 1916, but he understood the politically transformative power of the action of the rebel leaders and their executions and the politicisation of a new generation through those actions. Modern Ireland has difficulty with all of this, but the historical record does show that a vanguard of public opinion was decisively shifted, and this is reflected gradually between 16 and 18, though the events of the summer of 18 may have affected things as well. Why did the Irish Revolution return to the gun in 1919? A series of British cabinet and Dublin Castle political decisions had radicalised public opinion in Ireland, from the attempted introduction of conscription in the early summer of 18, I'm going back three years now, from 21, Irish men had fought for Redmond. The Gallipoli campaign disillusioned many of Dublin's middle class as they saw their sons go to death there. To quote from another song, better to die neath an Irish sky than at Sulva or Sudel Bar. The Irish public was a spectrum from committed unionists through liberal home rulers and Redmondite home rulers to committed advocates of complete independence. The Irish Convention of 1917 had shown that while Southern Unionists wanted a compromise in an all-Ireland frame, Northern Unionists had dug in on the demand for separate treatment. Though Lloyd George had offered an immediate form of very limited home rule after the rising in 1916, it was clear that Irish work on the home front and Redmondite sacrifices counted for little from the end of the war. Redmond's imagined future of a new dispensation between Irish Unionists and Nationalists who'd fought together in the war was just that, another imagined future, not to be for most. The Marquess of Londonderry, who later became Education Minister in the new Northern Ireland, said that Ulster Unionists' lack of acknowledgement of that shared experience and sacrifice on the European battlefields disappointed and astonished him. The so-called German plot in the late summer of 1918 alienated moderate nationalist opinion and further radicalised those who'd been earlier interned in Frongok and were now arrested again. Lloyd George was busy at the end of the war in Paris and elsewhere. Ireland could wait by the end of 1918, but it didn't 
it radicalised. That Walter Long, a political anachronism, even before the war, was given the chairing of the Imperial Cabinet Committee on Ireland after the war was astonishing, or perhaps not. The high political decision by the Tory-dominated cabinet in London to greet with repression the result of the 1918 election and the establishment of Doyle Aaron was tactical. The best account of the following years is still Charles Townshend's book, The British Campaign in Ireland. From later on, the extraordinary number of diaries and memoirs from officials and politicians, some from within Dublin Castle, Mark Sturgis, Ormond de Winter, versions of the activities of Andy Cope, I mean, we can see very clearly and reconstruct the political calculations of the key actors at different times in those years. There is no mystery about what British politicians and officials intended by the summer of 1921. They're documented on file and in publications. Punishing rebel Ireland after the war had been subsidiary to a policy of providing Ulster supporters within the Tory-dominated coalition cabinet with an acceptable palliative. This was the Government of Ireland Act of 1920. The timeline is extraordinary. While the undeclared British war with nationalist Ireland proceeded from 1919 onwards, details of the Government of Ireland Act were being drawn up by Walter Long. Called the Fourth Home Rule Bill, it had naked negated the premises of all earlier, or all three earlier Home Rule Bills, and is best described as an act for the division of Ireland. The imagined unionist future of remaining in an all-Ireland within the United Kingdom that Edward Carson had sought was recognised as impossible, as it was clear by the summer of 1921 that Britain had made its choice. Extraordinarily, Arthur Balfour, who had fought Parnellism tooth and nail in the 1880s, and who'd built Edward Carson's career through the Mitchellstown shootings of the 1880s in that process, was still core to British cabinet decision-making at this time. His lines are telling. Behind Irish politics, behind the moderates, there is the real force making for change, and that force always makes for independence, which this cabinet won't give. Women pervaded the revolution and the revolutionary process. Many had cut their teeth in the long and bitter war for the franchise, only finally conceded with great reluctance after the war. The women of Inigny Heron, those who'd been in the Gaelic League, in Common Naman, the Stopford women, Albina Broderick, the sister of the former leader of Southern Unionists, Lord Middleton, had joined other women like Kathleen Lynn. Irish Protestant women, many from Unionist backgrounds, disproportionately joined the revolutionaries. The subscription list for collection of funds for advanced nationalist financing in Tralee shows the names of countless local Kerry women who'd emigrated to the US and subscribed from there. Dulcibella Barton, cousin of Erskine Childers, was like her brother Robert Barton, who, who was to sign the treaty, an advanced nationalist. But the rest of her family were unionist, and she paid a high social and personal price for her loyalties. 
Alice Milliken had alienated most of her unionist brothers. She'd no money. She was forced, if you like, to return to the support of her brother in the North after 1921. She described being in a partitioned Ireland as like being in a prison. As the truce beckoned, a new jockeying for position was now in place. Mary McSweeney was very close to de Valera, but she was in the United States, as were some other revolutionary women. But as the truce settled, it was the so-called fighting men who moved into the front line of politics. Outside church and state, free and on their own march, many of these men closed the doors on their former female comrades. The fact that women now had the vote in 1921 did not mean the addition of large number of active female candidates to selection lists. A tenth of the Bureau of Military History witness statements are from women. Alice Dufford Green sold her house in London and moved to Dublin after Caseman's execution. She wrote anti-partition propaganda. She travelled to Belfast to retain contact with her friend, Francis Bigger. Her house on St. Stephen's Green was a hub of evolutionary activity. Arthur Griffith came to her for advice. Maura Comerford, as her secretary, was incredibly active. Her nieces in Fox Rock provided safe houses for the Doyle cabinet to meet at this time, as we can see from witness statements. She describes Colin stacking his bicycle outside. Numerous other women in the city were similarly engaged. In Unionist Ulster, we can see political strategy revealed most clearly through the fascinating diaries and letters of women, including uh, Craig's wife, Spender, Lillian Spender also, and others. These women who were close to the power brokers drove much of the politics but had no public role. Who could imagine in the summer of 1921 that within a year Griffith and Collins would be dead? That a whole new cohort would die after the Treaty of December 1921? that the aspired for republic with its radical demands would never be or never as a 32 county entity. In the novel Amongst Women, John McGahern shows the father as a force of post-revolutionary disappointment, oppressing and quashing the next generation. In that summer of 1921, still carried on by the hopes of a republic, Many did not see the hard fates that lay ahead of them, exile, poverty, and loneliness in some cases. Some never got jobs again. Some fell into poverty and failure, remembering the four glorious years when they were young and free and fought, fought for Ireland. We look back now on that summer of 1921 and find it hard to understand that most nationalists at the time refused to countenance the idea that partition, effected in that summer, could be permanent. They just couldn't believe it. Those who had run the Dungannon clubs in 1907, the revolutionary circle in Belfast around Bigger's House or Dree on the Antrim Road, they did not believe that the Tyrone of George Sigerson and Patrick McCartan 
and Dennis McCullough would be permanently politically severed from the rest of Ireland. Sigerson's daughter, Dora Sigerson Shorter, never saw any future at all. Southern Unionists were uncertain, but willing to try to accommodate whatever emerged. The writer Barbara Fitzgerald, daughter of John Allen Fitzgerald Gregg, Church of Ireland Archbishop of Dublin, expressed her father's fears and their fears. Once the truce was put in place, all the conservative forces in the country were, for obvious reasons, anxious to maintain it at any cost. Summer soldiers joined up. People who had not fought in the previous two years signed up. The truce provided an opportunity for some to settle old scores, agrarian and other. In the north, or rather the recently established jurisdiction of Northern Ireland, the truce barely registered. The Northern Volunteers, in fact, became more active. All of this strengthened James Craig's hand in his dealing with Lloyd George and later Churchill in demanding a full security apparatus, which at least on paper, Northern Ireland was never intended to have. Northern Nationalists, Southern Unionists, women, the rural and urban poor, all to some degree, lost the peace in different ways. The futures they had imagined and hoped for were not to be. Kathleen Clark, who had spotted and hired Michael Collins, who had all the documents to keep the revolution running after the executions in 1916, lost her husband, her brother. She miscarried a pregnancy she'd never told Tom Clark about. After over a decade in prison, Tom Clark, years older than her, known in prison as Wilson, as amnesty was pressed for by Redmond, amnestied and returned to recover with the dailies in Limerick had, much to the family's horror, married her. Her fascinating autobiography was not published in her lifetime because it was assumed that she really did not matter very much at all. Of the brilliant female writers and analysts in these circles at that time, only Dorothy McArdle succeeded in print. What appears to matter in that summer of 1921, that summer of the truce, is the question of who will negotiate on the Irish side with Lloyd George. It seems clear that though the women had been the equals of the men in the struggle, they were not to be included in the negotiations. If you look at nominations for safe Sinn Féin seats earlier and later, you'll see the pattern begins to emerge quite early. Very few women at all. We have the gift of knowing what happened. In the summer of 1921, none of the actors knew where the future would bring them. In the extraordinary language of the Nestor section of James Joyce's Ulysses, a book concerned with all of these questions. There is that powerful riff on what are called the ousted possibilities. And I quote, Time has branded them, and fettered they are lodged in the room of infinite possibilities they have ousted. Recovering imagined futures from that summer of 1921 takes us back as well as forward. And the Irish Revolution has to be seen in the space from 1880 to 
1925. It is from that time frame we can make sense of the summer of 1921 and all of that which it presages. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. Um, we will now have responses to that paper. First, from Katrina Crowe, archivist, historian and broadcaster, former head of special projects at the National Archives of Ireland and former manager of the Census Online Project, which placed the Irish 1901 census and that of 1911 online. She presented the RTE documentaries Ireland Before the Rising and Life After the Rising. Katrina Crowe. Thank you, John. My thanks to the President for inviting me to be part of MOCNAV, a thoughtful, reflective set of explorations of vital issues during our decade of centenaries, valuable in so many ways, particularly when an unnatural pause for thought has been imposed by COVID-19 and the attendant closure of archives and libraries. The theme for this session of MOCNAV is Recovering Imagined Futures. We're living out at present a fundamental disruption to our various imagined futures by a world historical event, a global pandemic, which has wiped out the actual futures of millions of people around the world and created futures dogged by ill health, unemployment and poverty for millions more. It gives us some idea of how a war-weary Europe must have felt in 1918 when the flu pandemic arrived to destroy so many fragile imagined futures. I have been an archivist for most of my working life. Archivists deal with the imagined futures of documents, many of them now electronic and in some peril. We have to imagine the potential futures of these documents in terms of their usefulness to scholars, genealogists, and increasingly to the general public. These emphases have changed over time to include new disciplines like social, gender, cultural, and labor history, and archivists have to try to keep pace with these disciplines and to remember that the material we deem worthy of pres preservation now may have many uses in the future that we cannot imagine. The raw materials of huge statistical record sets like census records have become much more important over the last 40 years as family history has become an absorbing study for many individuals and scholars. The records were created to provide a statistical base for understanding trends in population, occupation, household composition, living conditions, education, and other matters. These findings were and are, theoretically at least, supposed to provide a solid basis for national and local planning strategies, for educational provision, and for fair distribution of electoral rights, among other things. The statistics generated by analysis of the forms we all fill out every 10 years are sufficient to provide that information. However, the huge interest in genealogy and family history, which has grown over the last 40 years, has produced a new focus on the actual household returns made for each census and a concerted effort by archivists to make them available, often through mass digitization projects. The success of our own digitized 1901 and 1911 censuses bears testimony to the public embrace of records which shed light on their family pasts and to the new tool of digitization as a transformational aid to dissemination of archives to the broadest possible readership, what has been called the democratization of archives. Margaret O'Callaghan has given us a scintillating overview of 1921, that crucial year in defining the futures of both parts of this island. I want to respond to her thought-provoking paper by amplifying the story of the archives which allow us to understand the period. 
All historical scholarship depends on the availability and accessibility of archives, the raw materials, which allow us to know what we know about the past. The two biggest archival collections which have recently shaped our understanding of the revolutionary period are the Bureau of Military History Collection and the Military Service Pensions Files. The Bureau is the oral history of the period from 1913 to 1921. The Pensions Files are the record of those who applied for pensions for active service in the various conflicts from 1916 to 1923. The release of the Bureau Papers in 2003 and the online release of the witness statements in 2012 meant that the voices of 1,773 people who played a part in 1916 and the War of Independence were available for the first time. And they were used by historians like Fergal McGarry, Lucy McDiarmid, Roy Foster, Dermot Ferreter, and Charles Townsend to really good effect. The military service pensions files began to be released online in 2014. And their ongoing release continues, bringing us not just a comprehensive account of various engagements during the conflicts, but a kind of shadow history of poverty, ill health, and disappointment in the first decades of the new independent state, as people wrote heartbreaking letters seeking even small sums of money in recognition of their service. As Margaret said, Ireland has one of the best documented revolutions in the world. It was very important as we approached the decade of centenaries that this documentation would be available uh, to inform our understanding of the anniversaries we would be marking. And now that it is in the public domain, this material provides rich sources for the period which can be mined well into the future. The wonderful Military Archives website has the digitized versions of both collections available online free to access. There was a lot of fear about the release of these records before that came to pass. As it turns out, the sky has not fallen on our heads for opening up records that are 100 years old that deal with our revolutionary period, and that is something to celebrate. One of the interesting features of this round of commemorations, which as Margaret says, always reflects society's current preoccupations, is a new interest in victims of conflict. For example, Joe Duffy's work on children killed during the 1916 Rising brought us a new lens through which to view that event, one that focused on the collateral damage inflicted on certain non-combatants. Many of us wanted to complicate the narrative of these years, and that has been done successfully, often due to the availability of the new archives I've mentioned. Because we now have the pensions files, we can discover the story of 16-year-old Bridget McCain, accidentally shot dead through her front door off Moore Street by rebels fleeing the burning GPO in 1916. Her father, Thomas, put in a claim for compensation 20 years later when such claims became possible. He got 100 pounds, about 5,000 euros, in today's values. This session of Machna focuses on the issues of gender, land, and class. Gender and women's history is thriving here in Ireland, particularly relating to women in the revolutionary period. The two major archives I've mentioned have plenty of material relating to individual women, like Grace Gifford, Louise Gavin Duffy, Constance Markovich, and Rosie Hackett. But they also shed light on women who were not well known, like mothers and sisters applying for pensions on foot of the loss or disability of husbands, brothers, and fathers, laying out pitiful stories of poverty, sickness, and resentment at the resolute determination of the state not to give money to those whose loved ones had given their lives or their health to the struggle for independence. The Department of Finance almost from day one set its face against giving too much money to these no doubt worthy recipients. 
When considering archives relating to women, we should remember the records of the religious orders who ran health, education, and welfare services here well before 1922, and with added power and control thereafter. The recent report of the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes has reminded us that congregational archives contain vital information about tens of thousands of women and children who passed through these homes, as well as Magdalene laundries and industrial schools. They also contain records of the nuns who ran these institutions, nearly all of whom came from Irish families and communities. The fact that these essential archives are largely closed to researchers is unacceptable, considering the close relationship between church and state for most of the 20th century. They should be public records in acknowledgement of the congregation's almost total control over essential state services and their close and oppressive relationship with large numbers of our citizens. In this regard, the testimonies of survivors of mother and baby homes given to the recent commission form an extremely valuable sample of the experiences of tens of thousands of women and children who went through these homes and whose lives are still being adversely impacted by those experiences. It is to be hoped that the backup tapes of their testimony, luckily discovered to be viable after the destruction of the originals, can form the nucleus of an archive in consultation with the survivors themselves, which can be used for scholarship and for the education of our young citizens in former practices of our state and churches, which may seem unimaginable now. Margaret referred to the land question, as did the president, which from the 1880s on changed the ownership and class composition of rural Ireland. We have to remember that between 1890 and 1922, approximately 75% of the land of Ireland was transferred, transferred from landlord to tenant, a quiet revolution which followed a noisy and successful land war. Land was always the big issue, from the huge dispossessions of the 17th century onwards. The fact that the problem was partially solved so quickly at the beginning of the 20th century is both fascinating and problematic. The Land Acts created a rural society of conservative Catholic smallholders with a newfound interest in respectability and sexual probity, both of which bore down most heavily on women and had a lot to do with the establishment and maintenance of mother and baby homes. The records of the Irish Land Commission, a vast collection spanning the 16th to the 20th centuries, are still inexplicably not available to the public. Their absence means that we cannot fully understand the creation of the modern state, these records are the last piece of the archival jigsaw relating to the revolutionary period and what went before and came after it. The collection also contains vast amounts of genealogical material in the fair rent registers from the 1880s and 90s, which are a partial replacement for the 1881 and 1891 census records destroyed during World War I because of a paper shortage. The original deeds to the transferred estates, some going back to the 16th century, and a wonderful collection of leases from the Church Temporalities Commission dating to the 18th century are two other constituent parts of this enormous collection, which merited its own custom-built archival repository at the back of the Land Commission offices on Marion Square in what is now the Marion Hotel. When the Land Commission offices were sold in the 1990s, a rescue operation for the records had to be mounted to prevent them from being destroyed. They were preserved, but only to become inaccessible. The Land Commission records should, under the terms of the National Archives Act, be available to the public. Perhaps the decade of centenaries may provide a reason to insist on their release. 
There are decades of scholarship to be fruitfully carried out on these vital records. And while we're at it, it would be wonderful to have a slightly early release of the 1926 census, the first held by the new Irish state and currently closed until 2026. If we could compare the 1911 census with the 1926 census, there are so many lessons to be learned from that. Class is an underexplored issue in Irish historiography. Labour historians like Emmett O'Connor, Francis Devine, Pori Gates, Therese Moriarty, and John Cunningham, who's here today, have valiantly tried to illuminate our ambiguous and elided past with regard to class. The Irish Labour History Museum and Archive is the repository for many collections of trade union records and the private papers of individuals active in the labour movement. This is a very important archive of material which reflects the aspirations and activities of large numbers of our citizens. The trade union movement was, and to a sadly dwindling extent still is, the biggest and most effective civic society organization in history, where working people could choose their own leadership and advance their legitimate interests. Yet, the Labour History Archive receives minuscule funding from the state. The labour movement played a crucial part in the revolutionary period, from James Connolly's writings and actions, to the Citizen Army's involvement in the 1916 Rising, to the anti-conscription strike of 1918, to Tom Johnson's draft of the Democratic Programme for the First Thoyle, to the fascinating Limerick Soviet of early 1919. The tension between nationalism and socialism was one which continued after the establishment of the new state. Labour's long wait to achieve some political power in government is a story we all know. But we don't know enough about the ordinary men and women who drove the trade union movement on the ground. The state gives a richly deserved annual subsidy to the Irish Architectural Archive, a splendid organization with an appropriately beautiful building on Marion Square. But the archive which holds the records of thousands of people engaged in democratic pursuit of economic equality and badly needed protection for the rights of working people gets no such subsidy. Labor, it seems, must wait even when it comes to its valuable history. We are now in the middle of the period reflecting on the most turbulent aspects of the War of Independence laid out so concisely and clearly for us by Margaret's keynote paper. The establishment of the state of Northern Ireland, the burning of the Custom House, the truce, the treaty negotiations and debates, these will be our preoccupations in 2021. Questions of violent opposition to Britain, its destructive response, the cessation of both 100 years ago, the copper fastening of partition, the treaty debates, perhaps the most consequential debates on the shape of this country that we've ever had, and the looming prospect of civil war will keep us all busy for the next while. There is great value in anniversaries. Without significant state support and funding for the decade of centenaries, and particularly for the release and accessibility of crucial archives, we would not have got to this point with an excellent record in events like the state commemoration of the Easter Rising, numerous valuable academic conferences, publications which have exceeded expectations, informative and accessible TV documentaries, and arts events like Paul Muldoon's 100 Years a Nation, or a new production's These Rooms, which use poetry, music, drama, and dance to illuminate respectively the entire history of Ireland, Mr. Muldoon, and the North King Street Massacre of 1916 and new productions. The expert advisory group to the government, composed of historians and archivists, has offered creative and constructive advice on the course to be taken during these years. Its members have also, st also staunchly promoted the archival project. 
Fintan O'Toole said in 1916 that the Irish people now only trusted the army and the arts because of the exemplary behaviour of both in the 1916 commemoration events. I think he would concede that others also deserve trust. Our historians, archivists, museum curators, teachers, local committees, and indeed our president, who have played a significant role in commemorations of specific events. For example, the commemoration of the Solohead Beg ambush in early 1919 involved descendants of the two policemen killed in that ambush and was impressive in its solemnity and dignity. The Machnav Initiative is a valuable part of our intricate, many-layered, illuminating response to the events of 100 years ago. The pause in our lives inflicted by COVID-19 has given us a chance to interrogate and reflect on those events, and Machnav has provided a welcome space for the fruits of those reflections. Thank you, Katrina. Dr. John Cunningham is a historian from NUI Galway, widely published in Irish labour and local history, and co-editor with Terry Dunn of the forthcoming Spirit of Revolution, Ireland from Below, 1917 to 1923. He's entitled his paper, Recovering Imagined Futures, A Spirit of Revolution. Query, Dr. Cunningham. Is honor dom of a porchach and all college talk the shock, be may a conch for glushach de locked ibra, la linna trevesha revelodicha. In 1967, uh, Martin O'Sullivan, a retired Athlone train driver, contributed two articles to the Irish Independent. Martin was originally from Galway, and he grew up in a railway family in the shadow of the Augustinian Church in Middle Street, a place President Higgins knows very well. In the articles, he discussed his part in the munitions embargo, a trade union action which impeded the movement of British military equipment between May and December 1920, and which, for that reason, loomed large in the calculations of Michael Collins and his colleagues. That it involved large numbers is established by the figures for those dismissed or suspended for taking part. 1,000 railway workers and 500 dockers. If the trade union embargo had a major impact in the conflict in 1920, it did not have the same impact on historical narratives. And nearly 50 years later, Martin O'Sullivan concluded his account in The Independent by expressing his bewilderment that, and I quote, those important events were not recorded in any recent history of Ireland. The embargo is the subject of a recent publication by railway historian Peter Rigney, and it features obliquely in the opening scene of Ken Loach's The Wind That Shakes the Barley. But it would be fair to say that it remains part of the hidden history of the period. The same might be said, more or less, about other contemporary labour mobilisations. To give two examples. The Irish Trade Union Congress's anti-conscription strike in April 1918 played a large part in changing the course of events during that fateful year. While the general strike of April 1920 forced the British government to release hunger-striking prisoners within two days. Martin O'Sullivan's indignant disappointment has relevance to the Machnav theme of imagined futures. Defying the military, he and unarmed comrades risked their lives as well as their livelihoods in defence of the incipient republic. They had the reasonable expectation of having this acknowledged, but in the dominant narrative of the struggle, their contribution was ignored, 
relegated by the drama of ambushes and elections, but also by the state-making imperatives of a conservative polity. Social remembering and commemoration, as Margaret O'Callaghan reminds us, has involved selective forgetting. Some of the forgotten things one hopes may be recovered in contexts like the present one. Behind the mobilizations I've mentioned lay other imagined futures. Trade unions could put, uh, could put boots on the ground, as it were, because of the increase in their membership, itself a reflection of a widespread determination to fight for a better life. The most remarkable growth was in the ITGWU, founded by the absent James Larkin, which grew from 5,000 members in 1916 to 100,000 in 1920. Of the 100,000, approximately half were farm labourers. And their embrace of the ITGWU represented the impulse of a marginalised group to exert some control over their working lives. Strikes, workplace seizures, Soviets were among the weapons they used. As scholars including Emmett O'Connor, Pamela Horn and Finton Lane have shown, rural labourers had fitfully organised in previous decades in bodies like the Irish Land and Labour Association. They had exerted pressure, especially after labourers won the right to vote in local elections in 1898. The key achievement of the earlier collectivities was a transformation in housing. In the 30 years before the First World War, under the Labourers Acts, almost 50,000 labouring families had swapped uh, their unsanitary hovels for council houses with tillage plots. The process is treated informatively and engagingly by the Loch Ray writer Seamus O'Kelly in his one-act play Meadow Suite. O'Kelly was familiar with the arcane workings of the Labourers Act from his day job as editor of the Leinster Leader. But if labourers secured decent houses, wages and conditions were a different matter. In those respects, labourers had remained at the mercy of farmers and landlords. War would change the balance of forces in the countryside. Wartime demand brought price inflation. Good for those like farmers with something to sell, bad for those dependent on wages. Other developments, though, gave workers a bargaining position. With military enlistment reducing the numbers available, compulsory tillage increased the demand for labour. An Agricultural Wages Board was established in 1917 to guarantee the wartime food supply by encouraging labourers to remain on the land. However, it was necessary for labourers to become unionised to claim their new entitlements and their share in agricultural prosperity. Initially, there was something of a resurgence of the older associations, but most were soon absorbed by the burgeoning ITGWU, which mushroomed in those parts of Leinster and Munster where farm labourers were most numerous. Even for a county like Mayo, with relatively few labourers, Francis Devine lists 19 ITGWU branches in 1918-19, including Ackle Sound, Belmullet, Ballycastle, Kilkelly and Shrewdle. The story in Ulster was rather different with complexities that I can't do justice to here. It merits separate treatment. 
uh, perhaps in a future Lochnev. Uh, the ITGWU, of course, uh, promised more than wage increases. In its periodicals and in the rhetoric of its organisers, it also promulgated an imagined future of its own, encompassed in the idea of the Workers' Republic. It was an idea formulated by James Connolly, and that union laid claim to its martyred leader and his legacy, increasing its authority uh, throughout nationalist Ireland while pointing frequently to the Russian revolutions as current manifestation of the uh, Workers' Republic. The Manchester Guardian reported in May 1920, and I quote, the ITGWU, Connolly's body, is particularly active all over the country and penetrates to such remote spots as Clifton, the far end of the desert of Connemara. It brings with it into the towns of the West an entirely new magazine of ideas. It proclaims that patriotism is not enough and that though Sinn Féin may be all very well in its way, the Republic will be no good unless it is a workers' republic. While Guardian readers were digesting all this, another wave of unrest was sweeping from the West, this one involving small farmers, so-called congests, anxious to add to their uneconomic holdings while there was still the chance. Land held by graziers was targeted and the repertoire of agitation, cattle drives, land seizures, was drawn from decades of agrarian struggle. The context is well analysed in works by Heather Laird, Fergus Campbell, uh, Tony Varley, Michael D. Higgins and others. Of many dramatic episodes, I'll mention one from my own neck of the woods, uh, where J.G. Alcorn, High Sheriff of County Galway and landholder at Kilroe, Corndulla, was dipped in Loch Harab and threatened with drowning if he refused to sign over his grazing land. He didn't refuse. So, alongside military engagements, separatist victories in elections, and the creation of Dáil courts, those social changes were taking place. The overlapping and intersecting phenomena have been collectively characterised in recent decades as the Irish Revolution. But was there really a revolution? The question is posed by Mark Mulholland, who identifies features associated with revolutions, including a fundamental change in the social order, and he found most of them lacking. If there was an Irish revolution, he suggests, it started in 1879, and one of its key achievements was the wresting of control of the land from the landlords. And if the process was protracted, the context was also very broad. In March 1919, Prime Minister Lloyd George wrote in confidence to the Paris Peace Conference, quote, the whole of Europe is filled with the spirit of revolution. In some countries, the unrest takes the form of open rebellion. In others, it takes the shape of strikes and of, general, of a general disinclination to settle down to work. Symptoms just as much concerned with the desire for political and social change as with wage demands. Whether we conclude that there was, in fact, an Irish revolution, Lloyd's Lloyd George's spirit of revolution was certainly at large in the years around 1919. In addition to the examples I've given, there are many others in an imminent publication of that title, Spirit of Revolution, uh, that Terry Dunn and I have been putting together. And thanks to Terry Dunn 
for bringing the Lloyd George document to my attention. Frequently, we see IRA volunteers involved in contemporary labor and agrarian struggles, but this was discouraged by our IRA and Sinn Féin leaders. Sinn Féin courts and dedicated land courts quickly camped down on agrarian agitators, and from the period of the truce, there was less tolerance of labor militancy. By the early free state period, strikes were being labeled labor irregularism. The servants of the embryo state generally saw social agitation that was outside their control as opportunistic, destabilizing, and illegitimate. Vigorous interventions to stamp out agrarian militancy in 1920 were followed by similar stands against labor unrest, against Soviets early in 1922, against farm laborer strikes in Kildare and Waterford in 1922-23. Research for the spirit of revolution suggests that there was little to distinguish between the attitudes of pro and anti-treaty camps in this regard. The historiography has often echoed the architects of the state in treating social agitation as opportunistic and largely peripheral, which is puzzling insofar as influential social science writings, notably Charles Tilley's, have recognized popular contention or mass mobilization as key markers of revolution. It is to be hoped uh, that a more holistic view will be a legacy of decade of centenaries research. However, there is the risk that over-reliance on newly available sources, such as the Bureau of Military History witness statements and military pensions applications, exciting and informative as they undoubtedly are, will tend to give even more attention to, to ambushes at the expense of creamery Soviets and land seizures. Contemporary newspapers and police reports tend to have more on popular contention. Uh, my paper has focused on male manual workers, but their success in greatly increasing their wages drew others to trade unionism. There was an influx of women and of professionals who would not hitherto have identified uh, with labor. Uh, there was the Irish Nurses' Union, which was established in 1919. Uh, there was a new Irish Bank Officials' Association, uh, which went on strike in the same year. Established bodies, including the important INTO, uh, treated definitively by Niamh Pershale, affiliated with the Trade Union Congress. In May 1920, at the peak of the cattle drives, the ASTI placed pickets on Christian Brothers' schools, outraging the religious employers, some of whom would victimize the teachers involved when things settled down a few years later. Other clergy, it should be said, were supportive of labor, acting as intermediaries and arbitrators. Through all the ferment, some were looking forward to putting the spirit of revolution back in the bottle. And we can see this inter alia in debates on social issues in the Irish ecclesiastical record. I'll mention one that is topical, uh, drawing on research I've been doing with uh, uh, Sarah Ann Buckley. An anonymous Sagart, writing in the record in 1922 on uh, how to deal with the unmarried mother, argued that any new scheme should shield, quote, the girl in trouble from further, quote again, degrading and corrupting influences by placing her 
in care and should also have, quote, a deterrent effect on the girls of her neighborhood. Continuing, he suggested that if the new mother and baby institutions were, quote, brought into touch, quietly of course, with people throughout the country who would be likely to cooperate with them, people such as the clergy, nuns, members of the St. Vincent de Paul Society, Catholic doctors, district nurses, social workers, etc., they would receive a much great no greater number of cases. That all came to pass. The Workers' Republic did not. The fact that radical visionaries were not as coherent or as cohesive in their vision was only part of the reason. Concluding, I'll return to Martin O'Sullivan, so irked by the version of events in the history books that he put pen to paper himself. Before going to the Independent with his account of the rail embargo, he had written to RTE and to the history departments of all Irish universities. He got no reply. The theme of imagined futures reminds us to be more attentive to stories like his. Thank you, John. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Katrina Clear, teaches 19th and 20th century history at NUI Maynooth. Her books include Studies of Nuns in 19th Century Ireland, Social Change and Everyday Life, Women's Magazines in the 50s and 1960s. She's currently working on a history of Irish popular writing in the first 50 years of independence. And her paper covers two case histories representing everyday life in the revolutionary era. Dr. Katrina Clear. It's a great honor to be here participating in Machnab and to hear the inspiring talks that have gone before us. Now, Margaret O'Callaghan has pointed out that people living 100 years ago in Ireland didn't know what was to come after and that we cannot evaluate their experiences as if they had this knowledge. Neither, I would argue, did they look backwards and see themselves as inhabiting a gloomy post-famine Ireland. The people who came of age in Ireland in the years 1891 to 1921 experienced dramatic transformations in all aspects of everyday life. The numbers of men and women working in shops, offices, factories, workshops, transport and communication, schools and hospitals increased by thousands at a time when population was falling. And these are raw numbers, not proportions. For example, there were over 7,000 more clerks in Ireland in 1911 than there had been 20 years earlier and over 10,000 more teachers and over 16,000 more workers in the new field of telecommunications in 1911. And these numbers continued to grow. All these workers and others like them had to present themselves for public view every day. And the resulting need for respectable and hard-wearing clothing and footwear created an unprecedented countrywide demand for dressmakers, tailors, cobblers, and drapery shops, more jobs in other words. And however poor their working conditions, and we've been hearing about how poor some of those working conditions were, waged and salaried workers had set time off. And therefore, you had seamstresses and shop assistants, factory workers and railway guards, clerks, teachers and telegraphists, learning Irish first aid or other skills, rowing on rivers, kicking football, making novenas, playing in bands, and of course, as we now know well, joining trade unions and other organisations. Irish people were still on the move out of Ireland. Emigration figures remained high in this 20 
year, 1891 to 1911, this 30 year period, emigration remained high. But the young and the single of both sexes were in a state of perpetual motion as well. By 1900, almost the entire country was crisscrossed by railway lines, big and small, which enabled people to cover not only long, but comparatively short everyday distances for work and for leisure all over Leinster, Munster, Ulster, and in southern and eastern Connacht. Gaps in transport provision were made up for by the bicycle, increasingly affordable to people of all classes. Now, because imagination is what we're talking about today, the two people whose lives I am using to illustrate the social changes of this period were writers, the novelist Annie M. P. Smithson and the poet Francis Ledwidge. They were different from each other in almost every way, gender, religious background, social class, occupation, geographical origin, even length of years. Smithson lived into old age, Ledwidge died young, and I'm not being flippant when I say that there were some distinct advantages to being female in the first two decades of the 20th century anywhere in the Western world. You, you, were, you ran less chance of being killed in combat, although I know Linda is going to talk about a different aspect of that. But both Smithson and Ledwidge were active adults in the decade of war and revolution. Uh, both were nationalists, both were trade unionists, and crucially, both developed the confidence to express themselves creatively. And by the way, I'm not making any literary judgments on either of them, even though they are writers, both of whom I enjoy in different ways. I'm interested in them today as exemplars of their time. Now, Annie Smithson was the older of the two, born in 1873 in Dublin into a middle-class Protestant family which gradually fell on hard times. By the age of 21, she was that familiar figure, the non-earning daughter, helping her overwhelmed mother to rear a young family. A sympathetic aunt helped her to get away to train as a nurse in London and Edinburgh. Smithson returned to Ireland in 1900 to become a jubilee nurse, one of those key apostles of public health. And over the next three decades, she worked on the district in Down, Clare, Offaly, Donegal, Mayo, Waterford and Dublin City. She became a Catholic around 1907 and around 1916 became an Irish nationalist, joining Conman Naman during the War for Independence. Her first best-selling novel entitled Her Irish Heritage was published in 1917 and it was directly about the female revolutionary experience. Smithson went on to write 19 more best-selling novels, many with women as their central characters, many about the revolutionary experience. Always a fighter for nurses' working rights, in 1929 she became secretary of the Irish Nurses' Union, later the Irish Nurses' Organisation, and she more than quadrupled the membership between then in 1929 and 1942 when she stepped down. She died in 1948. Frances Ledwich was born in Slane County Meath in 1887, the eighth of nine children. His father was an agricultural labourer who died when Francis was five. And all through Francis's childhood, his mother, Anne, worked as an agricultural labourer. Sometimes the fatherless family lived through hardships so severe that, as Ledwidge later put it, it was as though God forgot us. Francis left school at 14 and held various jobs until he became a road mender employed by the county council, eventually rising to the position of ganger. From his school days, he was always writing, and his first poem was published in 1910 in the Drogheda Independent. After publishing some more poems, he came to the attention of Lord Dunsany, 
a writer and poet whose help was of great significance. Ledwidge's first book of poems, Songs of the Fields, was published in 1914. As well as being involved in various cultural organisations, Ledwidge founded the Slain branch of the Mead Labour Union and in 1913 got a clerical job as secretary of this union. A founder member of the Irish Volunteers in Slane, Ledwidge chose to follow John Redmond and joined the British Army, serving in Serbia and on the Western Front. He continued to write until his death at Ypres in Belgium in 1917. So two very different people, both of whose lives though reflected the changing times. Nursing and road mending were responsibilities taken on by the public authorities at the turn of the 20th century. Both were extremely demanding jobs physically. The demands of road mending are obvious, but nursing at that stage involved an awful lot of pulling and dragging, not to mention the risk of infection. Smithson contracted tuberculosis between 1912 and 13, as she puts it, her health broke down and she recovered in a sanatorium. And district nursing, of course, also involved travel on bicycles over long distances, on call, seven days a week in all weathers. The bicycle was crucial to Ledwich too. At one stage, he was covering 40 miles a day going to and from work. He too had several bouts of illness. But Smithson and Ledwich were lucky in the sense that their jobs were relatively secure and permanent. And in other ways, both writers benefited from very real improvements in social provisions in late 19th and early 20th century Ireland. The Ledwidges, poor though they were, had moved into a solid three-bedroomed brick house built by the Rural District Council when Francis was a baby. So at least they had that comfort and dignity. And as John Cunningham has pointed out, they were not exceptional. The Irish rural labouring class was the best housed rural labouring class in Europe on the eve of the First World War. And although Ledwidge left school at 14, he had, up to then, the advantage not only of free national schooling, but also of a teacher famed for learning and dedication, Master Thomas Madden, who encouraged his poetry, really, and encouraged his literary ambitions. Smithson had a very patchy early education, as a lot of girls from her background did. She eventually got to school in Bray in her early teens and gained honours in her junior grade intermediate certificate. These state exams, again, this is another social benefit. These had been introduced in 1878 and they were open to girls as well as to boys on an equal level. However, Ledwidge, just as Ledwidge had to leave school at 14 to support his mother and younger brother, Smithson had to leave school at 16 to help her mother with a new baby. For working class boys and girls, and for lower middle class girls as well, family needs always came before individual fulfilment. Smithson felt guilty all her life at having seized her independence when it was offered to her. Just a little biographical note about both of them. Smithson never married. She did fall in love with a married doctor in County Down when she was younger. It didn't obviously work out. She gave him up. And after that, she didn't marry. Probably like an awful lot of other single working women in Ireland right up to the 1960s, she didn't want to give up her job and her independence uh, by getting married. Ledwidge was 30 when he died. He had had a number of girlfriends at that stage. He probably would have married had he survived the war. Um, working men, working class men, particularly men with active uh, cultural organisational lives, needed women to, to wash and cook and clean for them. 
because they couldn't afford servants. And that's not any reflection on, on him, but that's the way things were. For, for working women, a husband was perhaps sometimes additional work. For the working man, uh, the, the, the wife was a distinct advantage. Margaret O'Callaghan has said that working class men and women in general, they were among the groups that lost the peace, who were cast adrift somewhat in independent Ireland, and this is true. She also mentioned longing, which I thought was, was lovely, because longing is why we write and why we read. And both of these people expressed longing in different ways, in very different literary ways as well, uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And their voices remained strong into the first half, in, in independent Ireland, in the first decades of independent Ireland. Ledwidge's poems went into several editions over the succeeding decades and were regularly anthologised. Irish people obviously appreciated these meditations on human nature that evoked rural life. Smithson's novels were republished. They were all bestsellers and they were republished regularly by Talbot Press up to the 1960s. Again, readers, and not only women, must have appreciated the theme of strong women working out their destinies. By the way, Smithson was only one of many Irish female writers Novelists, biographers, travel writers and essayists were published between the 1920s and the 1960s. But that's a story for another day. For now, we are standing in 1921. We are seeing what Smithson saw and what Ledwidge would have seen had he survived the war. A world that each of them firmly believed was theirs to evoke, to record and indeed to shape and to define. Gorham Katrina, thank you very much. Our next speaker is Professor Linda Connolly, Director of the Social Sciences Institute at Maynooth University. Her research interests include gender, Irish society, family studies, and migration. Her paper is entitled Ethical Commemoration, Women and the Irish Revolution, 1919 to 1923. Professor Connolly. I am very honored to be present here today with Uchtharán Neheran and esteemed colleagues. My core task is to explore the ethical imperative of posing perhaps some of the more difficult and troubling questions about Irish women's experience of war and revolution in the period encompassing the Irish War of Independence, partition, and the Civil War and its aftermath. As Centennial Ireland approaches the commemoration of the Civil War, and the very violent foundation of the new Irish state, we might ask, who will be remembered? In the wake of very painful and difficult inquiries into the institutionalization of women in Magdalene laundries and mother and baby homes, Irish society has become more acutely aware of the troubled and troubling place that women have occupied and can occupy in Irish culture and history. One of our greatest poets on this island, the late Yvonne Boland, recalled that as a young poet, she began to see a huge rift in Ireland between the past and history. As time went on, she said, it was plain to me that the past was a place of whispers and shadows and vanishings, and that history was a story of heroes. In agreement with Francois Thébault, looking at the history of women and developing gender-based approaches changes and complicates our understanding of war, both of particular wars and of the general phenomenon of war. The Irish Revolution is no exception. 
Current themes in the study of women, gender, and wars internationally include the processes that accompany the exit from war, private life in wartime, and gender-based and sexual violence. Further consideration of these issues has the potential to enhance and further expand the scope of Irish revolutionary studies inclusively understood. As Boland says, exploring the ways in which hidden, sometimes all but erased stories of women's lives can powerfully revise our sense of the past. Feminist scholars 40 years ago began to independently demonstrate how women in Ireland's revolution could not be considered mere victims, stooges, or protected bystanders in the revolution. Uh, revolutions were not simply steered by male political leaders, heroes, or militants. Women, it is clear, actively shaped and contributed to the Irish Revolution while being profoundly impacted by it. The women's movement, one of the most important social movements of the last century, was a constant and critical presence in both the revolutionary period and in independent Ireland and beyond. Ongoing campaigns for women's social and political rights after votes for women was partially achieved in 1918 continued, and women's role as combatants and militants in other Republican and Labour causes, for instance, has been comprehensively recovered in women's history in recent decades. What Alexievich terms the unwomanly face of war is a complex issue, however. Over 20 years ago, the Irish sociologist Professor Louise Ryan published an early groundbreaking article entitled Drunken Tans in the journal Feminist Review. This article was written on the unspoken violence and terror that women experienced in the War of Independence specifically. She referred to and covered what the poet Seamus Heaney has described as the exact and tribal intimate revenge. Here we're referring to uh, sexual violence and gender-based violence. The hidden and targeted gender-based violence that women are known to have experienced in other armed conflicts has only more recently come to the attention of Irish historians, despite being written about in 2000, 20 years ago. A violent and invariably traumatic internal civil war cast a long shadow after the state was established. Yet, public analysis and acknowledgement of several aspects of the trauma experienced in such a divisive conflict was met with silence for decades. As President Higgins said in 2019, let us not look with any trepidation towards the commemorations of the coming years, lest we be tempted to avert our gaze, take refuge in evasion, or seek to ignore the difficult questions they shall raise for us all. Difficult questions demand difficult histories. A key but difficult question arising in this moment of national commemoration is, if violence cuts to the heart of the state's foundation, how and in what ways is it gendered? And why was the violence that women experienced marginalized, minimized, or negated in the official histories of this period for such a long time? I'm going to move on to look at some examples uh, of what I'm discussing here. And I'm first going to talk about hair and how hair is both uh, symbolically uh, important in understanding the Irish Revolution, but in understanding many wars and conflicts throughout time. 
There are many documented examples of forced haircutting being implemented in several counties in the period 1919 to 23, both by Crown forces and Republicans during the War of Independence in particular. The interplay of gender, power and sexuality in the revolution is very apparent. Women who forge friendly or intimate relationships uh, with British combatants or the RIC members, for instance, were sexually policed and punished by Republicans. The, re the reasons for meeting out this kind of punishment were a combination of things. For instance, security concerns, the passing on of information, uh, rep reprisal for assisting the enemy, such as through the provision of supplies, uh, providing accommodation, being a servant or working for somebody, and actual sexual policing, the social control of women's intimate relationships, friendships and movements. In May 1921, for instance, the IRA cropped the hair of Rose Logue from Menaclady, Donegal, after she laid a wreath on the grave of an RIC constable. Crown forces also conducted haircutting extensively, typically during frightening night raids on houses. Common Amon activists such as Kathleen Clark's sister Agnes Daly and Peg Broderick Nicholson in Galway were also subjected to this humiliating practice. And there are many cases of this in several counties involving varying degrees of force and violence, sometimes just a haircutting, but sometimes uh, physical punishment as well, or assault. These are reported extensively. In, they're in plain sight in the newspapers, in RIC reports, and in the wonderful personal accounts and sources that Katrina Crow uh, talked about earlier. As we engage with Dr. Margaret O'Callaghan's paper here today, including by reflecting on the history and legacy of partition, we can also recall that women experienced life-altering violence and trauma associated with the wider conflict in Ulster in this period. In County Tyrone, for example, a member of Cumann Amman, Eileen O'Doherty, was injured by B specials when she was standing at her front door. She was shot in both legs. Her military services pension application details how Eileen was a very successful grocer in the town. She was also involved in despatches, hosted meetings of IRA members, hid artillery, etc. After being shot, Eileen spent eight months in hospital, first in OMA and then in the Richmond Hospital in Dublin. A brother of Eileen, active in the IRA, was subsequently killed by British forces. The medical evidence from this period is extremely interesting, psychological records uh, and also doctors' Uh, records and interventions around some of the files in the military pensions. Letters from Eileen's doctor outlined the catastrophic nature of, of her injuries. In an interview, Eileen herself stated very poignantly that the wound she got had finished her. The pension applied for in light of this unstinting service and the injuries suffered was declined. The designation hero or economic provision for injuries inflicted was not extended to such women in post-revolutionary Ireland. Newspaper reports on the documented violence women in Belfast experienced in 1922 are likewise horrific. This is something that does need to be looked at in much more detail. 
newspaper reports showed that on June, on the 2nd of June 1922, for instance, in just one day, um, the Irish Times reported four deaths and 32 people were injured, including seven of whom were suffering from burns. One of those uh, was the victim of what was called at the time an inhuman outrage. Susan McCormick, age 40, a servant, was taken to hospital suffering from burns and shock. At shortly after nine o'clock on that night, a number of men called to the house of Dr. McSorley on Donegal Pass, where she worked, and they poured inflammable liquid over her. Shock and nervousness is consistently mentioned in such documentary sources. She suffered severe burns and shock. This is also reported in relation to forced hair cutting and other kinds of assaults on women occurring across several counties. We also get into more difficult questions when we look at sexual violence, which we know is a clear uh, and consistent problem in contemporary societies. A number of cases of wartime sexual violence, including what's referred to as gang, or what we call today multiple perpetrator rape, are also increasingly evident in the archives. Previously, it was assumed this was not a feature of the Irish Revolution at all. One of the most treacherous cases of this kind of transgressive violence uh, is associated again with the border region in Dromati, near Newry. Uh, and this was an event that was a precursor to what has been termed the Altnave Massacre. The gang, gang rape of the heavily pregnant publican, Mrs. Una McGuile, by three members of the B Specials occurred on the 14th of June, 1922. A servant, Mary McKnight, uh, was also assaulted. They lived in a, a public house. This attack was intertwined with the cycle of violence of the area. Women's bodies and sexualities were also targeted and cannot be excluded as a component of the cycle of violence uh, that was occurring. Similarly, the compensation claims for the loss of life that were to follow in Alton Vey outlines the horror, for instance, that Mrs. Heaslip experienced, witnessing her husband, John Heaslip, and her son, Robert, being shot in front of her at the gate into their yard by the IRA. Elizabeth Crozier, in the same episode, was also shot in front of her young family. Interlinked trauma on both and all sides has lived on a hundred years later. And these atrocities are still remembered on the hills, farms, and lanes of all counties in Ireland, throughout Ireland. Altnave is still remembered to this day. Intricate analysis of newspaper reports and archives, including military and legal trials, um, document such attacks on women, and they suggest that the interconnection of gender, sexuality, and power cannot be ignored as a salient issue in understanding the overall nature of violence and revolution in this period. Two other examples of gang rape in the archives of the Civil War include the attack on Margaret Doherty at Curranara in Foxford, a member of Common Amman by three National Army soldiers on the 27th of May, 1923, exactly 98 years ago. The second 
an attack on Eileen Mary Warburton Biggs, a Protestant woman in Drummondair, County Tipperary, by four local IRA members in June 1922. The gender-based violence I'm discussing here today cannot be associated with any one side in the conflict in this period, what some scholars have referred to armed patriarchy. The impact of sexual violence on these women from very different backgrounds is recorded in detail in many documents. Both of these women, Maggie Doherty and Eileen Biggs, died in what at the time was called mental homes or psychiatric institutions. Maggie died in Castle Bar in 1928 and her story came to light when her mother, Catherine, uh, applied for a pension for the loss of Maggie. Uh, because of what happened to her that night. She did not recover uh, from the attack that night. And um, the, second, uh, Eileen, uh, the second woman, Eileen Biggs, died in St. Pat's in Dublin in 1950. And a lot of the records about these women are coming to light. We are beginning to hear their stories and to learn more about who they were. Maggie is laid to rest under the shadow of the Ox Mountains in County Mayo. And I recently found Eileen in an unmarked grave in Mount Jerome, which I hope to rectify as an act of quiet commemoration. Commemoration and remembrance that the intergenerational families and associates of such women today often engage in outside of the state's official commemoration program is mentioned here today by me as a reminder of the possibility and power of local acts and healing gestures. The power of finding and opening closed archives documenting women's experience of the revolution cannot be underestimated either. The detailed file on the court of inquiry held in Ballinagh workhouse concerning the rape of Maggie Doherty was retrieved in the military archives in 2019. Maggie herself gave a very detailed testimony in that trial. It's a very valuable uh, source uh, for anyone who's interested in the relationship between war and gender. The Miguel, Doherty and Biggs cases are just some examples of the hidden history of women impacted by the, the violence of the revolution, which received no official acknowledgement in the decade after the state was formed and which was erased from official histories for decades. These women were not killed in an armed battle, but in some cases, they later died, or they died soon after, as a direct consequence of the trauma and the injuries inflicted, psychological and physical. Others lived on in silence, burdened with unspoken and unforgotten atrocities of the past. Conflict-related murders of women in this period are also evident, including, indeed, on the border. I will give just one example. The military services pension application that relates to Kate Connolly's also unsuccessful application under the Army Pensions Act in respect of the death of her daughter, Mary or Minnie Connolly. Minnie died from gunshot wounds under, on the 23rd of July 1922 at Edenapa, Jonesborough, County Armagh. It is noted in the death search enclosed in the file that the cause of death was bullet wounds inflicted by members of His Majesty's forces. The applicant claimed that the deceased was supplying milk 
and provisions to members of the IRA at Ravensdale camp. The deceased was returning with the Moore girls from a camp when shot, and Margaret Moore was also killed in the incident. Likewise, Kate Marr died in Dundrum, County Tipperary, in 1921, with injuries to her body that indicated sexual assault, allegedly at the hands of a member or members of the Lancashire Regiment who she had been in the company of that evening. And that file, the investigation, always secret um, in these cases, uh, was only opened in the 1980s. In conclusion, Women in Ireland's revolution clearly experienced transgressive violence that was extensively documented but at the time, but subsequently elided in Irish history for decades. The long-term impact of the bodily and psychological trauma and injury caused is apparent in sources that contain the testimony of individual women. But similar issues also arise in more recent history. Susan McKay, for instance, has recalled how in December 1982, the Irish National Liberation Army bombed a bar during a disco killing 17 people. 11 of the dead were British soldiers. They were the primary target. However, what perhaps received less attention at the time was that others killed were young local women referred to as consorts. In the 1970s, Republican paramilitaries tarred and feathered women deemed soldier dolls, as the term was used. The punishments inflicted and the language of consorts, collaborators, and dolls in this case is not any different to the punishment of and injuries inflicted on women in the revolution who engaged in company keeping with the Crown forces. The IRA, the IRA, indeed, appeared to have expended a great deal of time during the Irish Revolution and energy in policing women's sexuality. During the Irish Revolution, products like tar, dirty motor oil, paint, etc., were also doused over women in a humiliating fashion, uh, considered loyal, dangerous, and of loose morals. Indeed, this method was implied in the attack on two sisters in 1922, now referred to as the Kenmare incident. The state knew about the Kenmare case, and they also knew about the Doherty case in Foxford at the time. It's recorded in the Army Inquiry Committee uh, of 1924. In France, after the liberation, women who had been in relationships with Germans also had their heads shaved for consorting sexually with the enemy. In many other contexts, women's hair has been targeted by imperial forces or armies. Hair taking, as it's sometimes referred to by states, is an established weapon of war. Ireland was no different. The scale of the war might have been smaller in Ireland compared to other countries, other conflicts, but the practice was similar uh, and adapted. This also occurred in later conflicts, if we look at the War of Independence in Algeria, and indeed the Greek and Spanish civil wars, these same practices occurred. Far less women than men died in the revolution. The more common outcome for women severely impacted by the violence of the Irish Revolution, however, was life-altering rather than life-taking through uh, death by combat. Naming and recovering 
the lost experience of the women who, could, who continued to live with the hidden injuries of the revolution in the post-revolutionary period and whose experience did not fit into the post-revolutionary narrative is in itself an act of ethical retrieval. Nervous breakdowns, mental illness, institutionalization in asylums, emigration, loss of job opportunities and businesses and livelihoods, all of these issues feature prominently in numerous personal testimonies of both combatant women and civilian women. However, it remains to be seen. Will the official commemoration of the Civil War in 2022 to 23 find a way to ethically remember, understand, and mutually honor these women 100 years later? Or will the commemoration of the final stages of the revolution reproduce the gender hierarchy and power dynamic in Irish history that negated, diminished, and excluded these women's experience and contribution in the first place? Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Linda. And generally, our thanks to Margaret O'Callaghan for the initial paper, Katrina Crowe, John Cunningham, Katrina Clear, and Linda Connolly. Before opening a general debate, I now invite President Higgins for his reflections. The act of commemoration involves a choice and a decision to indicate an importance to an event or events chosen above others. To organise a celebration is to further add to the importance of envisaging as to how one's choice will be construed and the taking of responsibility for inclusivity as to how a discourse might be constructed in terms of response. What Mocknav seeks to do is, rather like what we have just heard in this session today, to provide as wide a context of fact, comment and research as is possible, so that we may be able to make such a reflection as will enable and empower us to have a deeper, fuller view of past events, have a tolerant method of recall in present time, and allow neither the past nor the present deprive us of emancipatory futures yet to be realised. I've been quite often struck by how it is within literature rather than sociology or history that the complexity of a period is best captured. I encountered this in the past when studying and writing of migration. The formal scholarship in social studies seemed locked in an approach that could not handle the important core of the migratory experience, transience. Yet in the novels of Patrick McGill or in Mickey McGowan's Rohamur and Thiel, I found the texture of what I sought. This is not to suggest a substitution of literature for history or a privileging of fiction over fact. Rather, it is to suggest that a sensitivity to literary sources can open the door to a necessary respect for a phenomenological approach in sociology and history, one that has not always been welcome. In this regard, and dealing with the title of my paper, Land, Social Class, Gender and Sources of Violence, I've been returning to John B. Keane's play, The Field. What an introduction it constitutes to the distinction between 
ownership and occupation. The rocks hewn to clear the ground for the making of the field, not recognised in the sign for sale. The isolation of the widow whose life has been made impossible and is effectively left with the sole option of selling and leaving. The consequence, too, of realising that there will never be enough land and that what is anticipated as becoming available creates passions that are not merely of acquisitiveness or, as would become later, insatiable expansion, but of violence, covert and overt. I think it is unreasonable to assume that issues such as those derived from land, of evictions, of the transmitted memory of the Moor of exile and forced immigration, were not present in the formation of the minds of those participants in either the War of Independence or the tragic civil war which followed it. These are issues which precede both. They are unfinished aspirations for many, of both the ancient and more recently dispossessed. They run parallel with campaigns seeking more moderate forms of home rule, short of full independence. Indeed, these issues illustrate for us what were the formative sources of both social class distinction the decline and rise of new classes, and the new accommodations that would compose an enduring conservatism drawn from an intersection of the different movements of the late 19th century. Since the third decade of the 19th century, campaigns for repeal, reform of tenants' rights, home rule, clerical activism, and control of protest of the lower classes had intersected. There are times when they seem to be on the same path, when a resolution appears in prospect only to fade again. Later in the century, the division within the landlords reflected in the periods before and after the Land Conference of 1903 are an example of an opportunity that would come to be perceived as lost, just as the later failure of a British government to respond to the expression of the people's will in 1918 or the attempts at peace, such as that of Archbishop Clune, might also have been viewed by some historians. As to omissions, those left out, if more than 70 landlords attended the Land Conference of 1903, and if indeed there had been an argument as to how tenants would be chosen to attend, then surely it is also of significance that the agricultural labourers are not directly represented. We have in recent times moved away from the once popular inaccuracies of suggesting that the experience of the famine or its subsequent emigrations were a homogeneous experience of the Irish people. Those with least and without the means of leaving the country died in higher proportions. Those with means to leave are heavily represented in the emigration statistics. It is part of the removal of the possibility of any meaningful revolution or indeed deep revision or distribution of the land in response to an increasing population. The early 20th century began with a significant change in relation to Irish rural society. There were times when progressive views for tenant right reform seemed to fit together, as is recounted, for example, in their memoirs of Andrew J. Kettle, known as 
right-hand man to Charles Stuart Parnell. There were, too, those within the Home Rule movement who saw the resolution of the land issue as an outcome that would reduce support for their principal aim. By the removal of the support of the discontented and the variously organised land distribution activists. Between 1870 and 1953, Ireland was recomposed in terms of land ownership. The appendix to his memoir of his father by Lawrence J. Kettle, published in 1958, opens with the phrase The present generation of Irishmen has little, if any, knowledge of the revolutionary changes which took place on the land in Ireland during the 19th century. He goes on to give an account of the structures of landholding that preceded the plantations of Ireland, including that of the 17th century on the part of King James I, and of how later on Cromwell confiscated 11 million acres from Irish and Anglo-Irish estates and planted on them his troops and others to whom he owed money. However, it is in relation to the discussion around the passing of the Land Acts that this valuable memoir that Lawrence J. Kettle edited is most relevant for our purposes today. Between 1870 and 1953, 450,000 holdings of land, 15 million acres out of 17 million acres, changed ownership on an expenditure of £130 million. As Lawrence Kettle puts it, £8.13 and £4 per acre. This, however, was no revolution, but it is a formative influence on social class as it would go on to define a later island of Ireland. George Birmingham had written of how an inquiring of his local newsagent in County Mayo in the late 19th century as to how the vote on home rule had gone the previous evening in London. The shopkeeper newsagent had replied, to hell with home rule, it's the land we are after. The reluctance to deal with social class within Irish historiography is something upon which I've often pondered. Is it accidental? Is it ideological? Is it a function of historical tendency to assume a modernisation model as an explanation of change? However such questions are answered, the close examination of the sources of conflict is not something that has attracted scholars in the social studies of the near-modern period. The result is that we are left with significant omissions as to the experience, indeed of their place in history, of those who were the subject of such omission, who were the victims of deep structural exclusions and neglected consequences, of accommodations to hegemonic notions of property, uncritical acceptance of clericalism, suppression of gender needs and aspirations, and recipients of an authoritarianism with its unquestioned concept of hierarchy that would feed its way into the institutional structure. Historians have written in detail of how the cash component of the landlord's settlement was an inducement, indeed, as to how it had different consequences in Ireland and in England. There were, in the late 19th century, some landlords now capitalised who set about new strategies of management of their agricultural holdings. Others chose to expend their money in the contours of British society, and there would be consequences for this in adjusting to their later finalisations. There had, however, been earlier attempts at modernisation of land usage. 
1982, John Gibbons and I, in our chapter Shopkeeper, Graziers and Land Agitation in Ireland, 1895 to 1900, which was published in Irish Studies II, Ireland, Land, Politics and People, edited by Professor P.J. Drudy, we gave an example from County Mayo. In one case, Lord Sligo and the Earl of Lucan cleared 48,555 acres of their estates south of Westport to make way for Captain Houston, a Scottish grazier. All houses and smallholders buildings were broken down. The landlords received a rent of 2,100 per annum. They were saved as they saw it from the complications of collecting rents in small amounts from a multitude of poor tenant farmers. Houston went on to graze the land profitably for about 20 years and introduced new techniques and new breeds of cattle. He employed 30 herds of 20 labourers. He had 500 cattle and 12,000 sheep. When economic depression and particularly American competition began to bear on his enterprise in the early years of the 1890s. During these years, sheep were selling at 10 shillings less per head than five years previously, and cattle prices had decreased by three pounds or even four pounds per head during the preceding three years. The fall in the price of wool had been dramatic also. The first commercial farming experiment to follow the land consolidation had thus failed. Captain Houston gave up the land and it returned to the landlords practically a useless wilderness as far as its original purpose was concerned. The fact that the Earl of Lucan had divided up among smallholders two grazing tracts, one near Castle Bar and one south of Westport, from which he had already cleared tenants, raised expectations in the case of the Houston Ranch. The congested district sports set up in 1891 to purchase and amalgamate land holdings, as well as to promote development in general, had been alerted to the possibilities before the ranch was handed back. Indeed, a migration had been suggested. John Gibbons and I, in that chapter, went on to give details of a later evolution of the grazier phenomenon in County Mayo, the role of the shopkeeper grazier, Earlier in 1974, Peter Gibbon and I had drawn the wrath of modernisation theorists by publishing Patronage, Tradition and Modernisation, the case of the Irish Gombin Man. Our work had been out of the tradition of transactionalism in the anthropology of the time. We had been looking at the credit relations that prevailed on the fringes of society, even when they were contemporaneous with evolving banking systems at the centre of society. We did not purport to make a statement on shopkeeper-tenant-credit relationships in general. Our evidence was drawn from government reports in the West of Ireland. The 1982 chapter took account of what would later be the confrontation in the 1898 local elections in Mayo, which consisted of shopkeeper-graziers in alliance with, as the local press put it, the snobocracy versus non-grazier shopkeepers in alliance with the trades. And based on John Gibbons's fieldwork, we showed how, by keeping their regions of their credit relationships separate from the regions of their grazing activities, the shopkeeper graziers could prevail, could even find a space of influence within the, mo within the movements of the land war. 
This would become exposed and become a point of confrontation in the later United Irish League of 1898. In our chapter, shopkeeper grazers and land agitation in Ireland, in land politics and people, John Gibbons and I gave an illustration of the impact that the grazier acquisition and consolidation had on landholding patterns. In 1902, in the Westport Poor Law Union, 66 graziers held 98,790 acres out of 280,730 acres in the Union. 18 of these graziers were shopkeeper graziers from adjoining towns. Some held two, three or four ranches. The Kilmaclasa district in the Poor Law Union gives us an even clearer example. The district was made up of 21 townlands. Of these, eight were held by shopkeeper graziers from nearby towns, two were held by a local grazier farmer, and two were held by the landlord, the Earl of Lucan. Clearing the land as tillage with its labour intensity is abandoned is not and was not a uniquely Irish experience. The Enclosure Acts in England were a significant source of the men, women and children who would become the human content of its industrial revolution. Emma Dabiri, in her recent What White People Can Do Next, quotes from Mixkin's Woods, The Origin of Capitalism. Between 1750 and 1850, around 4,000 enclosure acts were passed, pushing dispossessed workers into the rapidly expanding cities as casual labourers. Between 1604 and 1914, over 5,000 enclosure bills were enacted by the English Parliament, which related to over a fifth of the total area of England, amounting to about 6.8 million acres. It would not be an insignificant achievement of Machnav if students in Ireland and Britain had the opportunity of seeing how the history of these neighbours, Ireland and England, are inextricably linked. This was, as nearly all agree now, an imposed experience based on what was the informing ideology, expansion and indeed adventurism of the new expansionist commercial and industrial changes that were taking place at the heart of the empire. That interconnection, the wider view, is important. Even the closest attention to detail as to the delivery of a particular event in its locality or particular time cannot compensate for missing the influence of the other in either direction. No more than in relation to our present capacities or our mutual future aspirations, we have been interconnected, and deeply so, through the tumult, tragedy and achievements of the late 19th and early 20th century. It is, of course, important as to whether that interconnection is worked in terms of choice or coercion, willingly or by overt or covert colonisation, a topic I sought to address in my consideration of imperialism in Mochnav Seminar 2. The massive expansion of the Irish population in the 19th century is well known to Irish students, but perhaps much less so are the facts of the English enclosures. Later in the late 18th and into the 19th century, the factory system would again change everything. This is recorded in the poetry of the time, the practices of rural life giving way to migration. William Wordsworth's poem, Michael, is an example. Factory life, mining life, would change even the most private aspects of workers' existences. 
while a new source of wealth had emerged, industry, the source of status, title, advancement in the artificialities of a society exempt from work, remained attached to land, a factor that would not be unimportant to an Irish landlord class, particularly its absentee component, whose pursuit of status in English society, combined with the issuing of prudence in lifestyle, accelerated, even if it was not the source of, the bankruptcy of their Irish estates. The land acts punctuate the decline of landlordism. However, I have suggested that the transformation in land ownership created a new class that could, as absentee landlords could not, for the most part, shelter behind the masks of religion and nationalism. It was in the same volume of Irish studies, too, that the differing positions of Samuel Clarke, a distinguished member of that group of United States historians to whom we owe so much for pioneering work on the social history of the 19th century, be it land, religion, or social movements, and David Fitzpatrick, whose work is similar. Samuel Clarke identified agrarian classes as at least a potential for revolt, both sporadic and organized. He saw it in the structure. David Fitzpatrick, however, drew her attention to violence within and between the network of families. There are points of convergence between their views. David Fitzpatrick wrote, the most universal problem faced by members of the rural population was that of getting and keeping the land, a problem that was becoming steadily more serious in the years after the Napoleonic Wars as a result of overpopulation and the deterioration of the Irish economy. But did this violence represent a collective assault by the Irish peasantry on the landowning class? The answer very clearly is that it did not. Much of this violence was a struggle by small farmers and labourers against large farmers. I believe that David Fitzpatrick's work, including his insistence on the STEM family having prevailed before the famine and the consequences that flowed from a subdivision where perhaps one member had a substantial habitation and others did not, was a valuable contribution. With a life expectancy low, as some historians have put it, young people snatched from life what they could and sought shelter in the corners of fields. Fitzpatrick's account of Clune in 19th century Leitrim describes conflicts in Clune as follows. Intensive conflict both within and between a wide range of social strata, conflicts so pervasive that concepts such as community or class collectivity carry little conviction. Conflict between members of different social strata cannot always be interpreted as a struggle of the downtrodden against their oppressors despite the numerous intimidatory notices and more violent outrages which were executed by labourers against farmers or by tenants against landlords and their agents. Other outrages manifest the relentless but less familiar struggle of the oppressor against the insufficiently downtrodden. In 1839, for example, two attempts were made to burn down the cabin of Brian Monaghan of Eden Bourne, the first by his nephew, who subsequently fled the country, the second at the instance of his, Monaghan's brother, who is wealthy and occupies the entire farm with the exception of the cabin in question. And if the cabin could be destroyed, the poor man who occupies it would then have no claim on the lands. It is important not to ever forget 
the experience of those at the bottom of the class hierarchy, as Clark or Fitzpatrick have written of it. Wherever one is on the island of Ireland, there are examples. The cottier who had only his labour to deliver in pre-famine times, paid for access to his shelter and a plot that could produce his daily seven pounds of potatoes with about 200 days of labour per year. While the English landholding system carried and carries its inherited traces of feudalism and that Ireland does not, it is hard to regard the experience of such a courtier as being substantially different from that of a serf. When one speaks of this, the sheer contrast with what would be described as the seminal anthropological account of rural life in County Clare in 1934 by Conrad Arnsberg and Solon Kimball is astonishing. Within a decade of a civil war, surrounded by land conflict in an atmosphere of clerical prohibition, of banned crossroad dancing, pastorals on the sinfulness of the body, and the dangers of losing the faith in a suggested emigration to a godless city to which all might emigrate, the authors found a system that was niche in its reproduction of itself. This was, as the author's model prescribed, carrying, as it did, the structural functionalist elements that would dominate sociology for decades. Yes, they did identify the harshness of country reactions where the property transition model had been disturbed, be it the barren wife or a young widow without issue. In accordance with social custom, they were required to accept repayment of their dowry and to return to their families. Where a husband had married into land, Stark, he too was expected to return to his people on being refunded his dowry if no children were born of the marriage after a reasonable period of time. Such a situation still pertained elsewhere in Ireland into the late 1950s. Osborne and Kimball stated as follows, the country districts recognise only vaguely the right of a woman to hold property. The patrilineal identification of family and land is incompatible with it. Whatever farm a woman works or controls is regarded as a trust for a son or brother of her husband or father. Such a relationship to the economy as was possible to the married woman might include having produce to sell at the local market, be it eggs, butter, poultry, vegetables, fruit or flowers. This was possible for while a railway system existed and as a source of income it effectively disappeared with the closure of the railways. The buses that were offered as a substitute did not facilitate the carrying of such produce to the market and together with the meagre income of such, or the meager income of such women, the markets themselves withered. Until the 1960s, too, the Irish census, we must remember, had a category headed relatives assisting. This referred, among us, to those members of the family who had not, as Arensberg and Kimball put it, travelled. An examination of wills of the period shows, too, how limited was their life world. They were offered a room in the house and a seat in the car to mass. That, as I wrote elsewhere in my poem, Relatives Assisting, had to be their consolation, together with their high Nelly bicycle and their prayers. Violence takes many forms and is not limited to the use of physical force. It can be sourced and expressed in a variety of ways, in structures. The patriarchy of land ownership that existed in Ireland 
the remnants of which perhaps remain with us, was one form of economic and cultural control in a society whose institutional sources of power were in a collusion with what amounted to little less than a land-based patriarchal violence that served to maintain men's power and dominance. Gender-based physical and sexual violence was also inflicted with cruelty and is an aspect of the revolutionary period that has been suppressed and denied until recently by some pioneering and fine historians. It is a neglect that has gone on far too long. The assumptions regarding what was to be the role of women in Irish society was to become a slow-burning issue that would reveal so much of what was exclusionary. It lasted well into the modern times. While the present generation may experience some of the games made in terms of rights, generations of women had just the experience of the struggle, often cruel and frequently harsh. Violence was unleashed on women in several forms and from all backgrounds. Gradations of such violence included the control of women over their bodies, the legacy of which lingered on shamefully into the modern times, manifesting in the form of mother and baby homes, forced adoptions, marriage bars, and unequal participation in many aspects of society, including participation in juries in the courts. We must now face up to all of the aspects of the period as part of our process of ethical recall. Such a commitment will help the ongoing shaping of a more compassionate and equal society. This necessitates an understanding of women's complex role as activists, the detrimental impact of violence and social and political divisions on them, and their part in the foundation of the new state, a state that would ultimately ignore the feminist and socialist ideals of the rhetoric of the early revolution, leaving women to live essentially as second-class citizens in a conservative, clerically-dominated nation. What I have outlined are sources of violence that were still in the ether of the period of the War of Independence and the tragic civil war. These are events about which now there can be no equivocation. Reading recently of, for example, the manner of the shooting of Mary Lindsay, who, on identifying preparations for an ambush on her land, sought to have it cancelled before reporting it. Was made to, I was made to recognise again how important it is to be unequivocal in condemnation of such horrific violence, of not allowing a particle or any strut of heroism to be attached to such a perpetration of not only the ending of a life, but the doing so in a way of exceptional cruelty, one that included the denial of a place of burial. In shining a light on the contested and divisive narratives of the past, including the sources and consequences of the gradations of violences, the linkages between land, social class, and the experience of women in early and more contemporary times in Ireland, we engage in a process of inclusive ethical commemoration in a manner that promotes tolerance, healing, and prompts consideration of the often conflicting senses of identity in contemporary Ireland, North and South. With a multiplicity of narratives being given public space, an emerging spirit of humility, maturity, and tolerance is a prize worth seeking. May we achieve it together, Barbama. And following now on all of those presentations, we'll have a 
questions and answers session here. First of all, Katrina Crow, can I ask you, land was central, the president emphasized that uh, as many other speakers did, but the land commission records, for instance, which you mentioned, are not available now. They are a treasure trove, hugely important. They are public records and they ought to be available. They certainly should be, John. It's been a bone of contention since they were rescued from the back of what is now the Marion Hotel back in 1992. Uh, at that point, they were transported under very difficult circumstances to the National Archives building in Bishop Street, and thereafter they went down to a warehouse in Port Leash, where they still are. And repeated attempts by scholars like Dr. Terry Dooley, who is extremely interested in, in the land question, have failed to get the Department of Agriculture, who are the legal entity who have control over these records, to release them. It is at this point illegal to have them not available. In ways, I suppose, we can account for it a little by the fact that the National Archives Act is relatively new, 1986, but still, it, I'm hoping that perhaps it is partly as a result of the discussion we're having today and uh, that there'll be a resurgence of interest in getting them out registry there. Registry of Deeds would be another. Archives are the Registry of Deeds and the Land Registry. Yeah. The Land Registry in many ways is more important because that is completely closed, but that archive contains the instruments of transfer of land largely between parents and children. And they're very revealing about what is allowed to the older people in the house uh, when they hand over to their son or... And they'd be especially the suited. And in fact, the only way they could be handled would be digitally, wouldn't it, by... by it's not online, the only way, online, but it but would be a much better way. Much better way, It yeah. would make it more they, accessible. They, Same with the Registry of Deeds, which goes back to 1708, so it covers a very long period of time. So it's something we've ignored... Uh, these archives really would change scholarship on the whole issue of land ownership, transfer, possession, dispossession, uh, yeah. the arrangements that were made in the new state. They would tell, tell us so, so much more, wouldn't they? Uh, President Higgins, you, you'd be supportive, obviously, of that well, initiative. Very much so. I, I think uh, it, it, it's just so important. Cert the Land Commission as well in relation to developing a, 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 the history of the land and land ownership, not just for the people involved, but also the, the sizes and the changes in sizes of holdings and what is happening. I, I would I'd say absolutely, uh, I think it's, would, it would be so valuable. I would strongly support uh, what Katrina is saying, yes. Yeah. Margaret. If you recognise that the Land Commission from 1881 was initially setting what they called a fair rent, which was believed to be interfering in the status of property, which is why Tories objected to it. And then subsequently, by the, end, by the early 20th century, involved in the sales, the amount of social history contained in these archives is literally transformative. I think their importance, as Katrina suggested, would probably exceed anything that we already have. I mean, it, it, it's remarkable. And the que I'm reminded of Kavanagh's lines, who owns this half a root of rock, mm -hmm. this no man's land surrounded by our pitchforked armed claims. There would be a lot of history and local history and family history. Everything, you know, yeah, it would be remarkable, absolutely yeah. remarkable. I mean, of course, I haven't seen them. <laughs> so I'm assuming that if the records have been kept properly, as one assumes they have, that, that, that there will be this va vast tract of material there. 
endless, endless volumes of fair uh -huh. rent registers giving really clear detail about what was going on in different places. As I said, they're almost a replacement for the lost census records of 1881 and 1890. So it would transform the history of it the was. second half of the 19th century, utterly. Yeah. And obviously, that was a period, John Cunningham, I think you mentioned uh, this, that, that in a way, you because you asked, was there, a was there a revolution? Question mark. Indeed, yes. um, and in a way, it was the land acts and the, it, it was the, the amount of land which had been transferred from tenant to farmer. There's nothing more conservative than a, a, a tenant who's become a farmer with 30 acres. Well, arguably, indeed, yeah. Um, I, I suppose um, with regard to uh, the record to understand the, uh, the, the, the process at the lower, lower level, which is uh, what, something we must understand if we're to uh, understand the general uh, dynamics. Um, uh, yes, that, 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 that this would um, open up uh, to transform social history, I think, and local history in Ireland. Uh, I just wonder um, if I can ask uh, Katrina, uh, what would it take in terms of the resources that are required? Enormous resources went into uh, putting the, making the Bureau of Military History records available? Not enormous at all. It yeah. cost very little, actually. Digitisation has become much cheaper, for example. A lot of the, the, the Land Commission records are, as Margaret suggested, in good order already. Yes. They're, they're, they're where they should be in terms of uh, the, the cataloguing of the collection. Um, it wouldn't take that much, to be honest. It takes the will to do it, as so much more in this country. If somebody had the will to do it, this could be done. And similarly with the Land Commission records, or the Land Registry yes. records. Um, partly it's because of under-resourcing of the National Archives, who do not have enough staff to take on any of this. The same would apply to another huge uh, cohort of but records, the 1920s. The reason I was census. mentioning digital access is that rather like the census, mm -hmm. it is they're of special interest to yeah. the researcher who's who wants to know what happened that 30 acres. Yeah, absolutely. Digital access is a tool. Yeah. It's a tool for dissemination to, to much, a much broader cohort of people than the ordinary paper records for which you have to come to a repository and visit you there. You have to travel, but it's only a somebody tool has to bring have, them out to you and so on, but they're yeah, made but for digital in my opinion. Let's point, remember, yeah. we have just realized how dangerous digital records are, mm. how, how easy it is to, to screw it up. There is another important point the important distinction between the agricultural sector and farming. It is the only record we would have of what farming was in all its diversity at different levels of size of farm and different relationships to the farm in terms of labour. From once you go past the lost land commission records, you're into discussion of sectors and output, but not of farming. So it's of crucial interest in relation to understanding what the history of Irish farming families and their lives. Mm -hmm. On the question of sources, Arnsberg and Kimball, for instance, that yes. you quoted, I mean, that is a repository, isn't it? An extraordinary record. And it, it's a matter of fact that it was these two American anthropologists who came to Clare and recorded just in time a way of life that was vanishing. Well, 1934, there's the Harvard study. It's preceded by a, a physical uh, study that, that there's going on. The expert on it, I think, was probably, I, I would think, uh, Professor Anne Byrne, uh, our, our colleague of John's. But 
uh, and then they added additional chapters to produce. The Irish Countryman is 1934, the parishes of Luke and Ranamona, and then you, in, you get, they add in chapters to give you a family and community in Ireland, which appears in the, uh, in the 1960s. The, the interesting side of it is it, it, it's, it's a kind of neat model, but they had consultations with Mr. de Valera, they were facilitated by Bishop Fogarty, and they found a consensus, really, in my, in my view. I've, I've raised some questions about it because the county clear of that time was, as I have described it in my paper, people were fighting over land. There were horrific uh, uh, about music, about the, the 1934, the Dance Halls Act. They, it, it's, and I think what, what is, what, it is, it, when I went to study, Postgraduate myself, people would ask you about the Ironsburg Kimball study. It was the most known, most quoted uh, account of Ireland uh, in anthropology circles for a long, long time. And a new edition from Clare County Council. It's still in still in print. I think that I'd say so Professor Byrne and, and Tony Farley and Chris Carton and others who have done very valuable work. I think. Katrina Clear, can I come to you? Why were women so invisible for so long? I think. One thing that's coming out today is that you'll only find in history what you look for. When you, when you look, you will find people. Uh, Linda looked for the records of violence in the newspapers. She found them. I've been looking, for example, at women novelists, writers, essayists, biographers, hagiographers in the 1920s to the 1950s. I've been looking in the newspapers. I've been finding them. They've been published, you know. We all started to ask questions about women in history about 40 years ago in, in this country because of the feminist revolution, I suppose, if you want to call it that. And therefore, that's what we found. Um, you have to kind of, you'll always find when you're, it's the questions you ask, you know, really. So I think that's it. We've become more interested in women's participation, women's role, women's mentalities, all that over the past while. And that's why we're finding them more and more. And the more questions we're asking, the more we're finding, and about men as well, a lot of men that we don't hear about, not necessarily working class men, but other male writers that have disappeared as well. So, you know, there is, they're all there. And do you think fiction now as a source of history, what's your view of that? Well, I think you have to be very careful using fiction yeah. as a yeah. source, you know, but I do think it's kind of interesting to see what was preoccupying people in the period. Um, the, the, the theme of women having to choose between love and work or love and their mission to serve Ireland. This was a common enough theme um, in uh, fiction in Ireland. But of course, the theme of women, strong-minded women, since the novel began, or, you know, if you go back to Jane Austen, any of those novelists, you always get strong-minded women in, according to the, the mores of their time in fiction. British fiction around this time as well had this theme of conflict, women being conflicted between love and work and so on. So it shows you Ireland wasn't actually that much different from yeah. other countries. Linda Connolly, on gender-based violence, isn't it also the case that euphemisms will be used, matters will not necessarily be recorded? It's in the nature of the evidence, isn't it, that that will be the case? Absolutely. So, so some of the cases I've been looking at, I tend to use uh, documents that are very clear as to what happened. But there are a whole range of other kinds of terms. You know, even the term outrage, for example, is sometimes used, where if it's a, 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 a first-person testimony by a woman, she might refer to something that happened to her. 
one of the sources I looked at, for instance, where a girl was being watched in County Tipperary. She had, was visiting the barracks after work. She worked in a chemist shop. And she describes the manner in which she was searched, um, having been followed by the IRA. And to me, that reads as a sexual assault, but she didn't use that mm -hmm. terminology. Likewise, you know, the terms we use today, sexual harassment, for instance. Uh, again, you can read uh, a report uh, or even some of the, the witness statements where events are described. And to me, reading that as a contemporary observer, that's, that's what it was. But that was not the language um, of the time, certainly. And I suppose the, the agency that, that women have today, perhaps, in terms of calling out something like that, simply didn't exist. So um, having said that, women did have agency, of course. Um, you know, they, they, um, you know they, they wanted an, to have relationships and friendships with men. So, so there was this tension, I suppose, between the policing of sexuality, uh, which I called it earlier, and then, I suppose, the choice of women uh, you know, to engage in relationships or friendships um, that, that maybe didn't necessarily fit uh, with the expectations, the social expectations. Mm. And uh, John Cunningham, you mentioned the Irish ecclesiastical record, for instance. Yes. That's a mine of information, isn't it, on the mentality of the priest? So, because they had their agony column as well. Indeed, yeah. And uh, certainly, I think I referred to the mother and baby home specifically, but there are debates going on over... Uh, months and years about a whole range of uh, social issues and you can see the uh, differing opinions uh, uh, say um, uh, Sir Joseph Glynn to men mention another Galway person um, was uh, from, 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 from uh, Gort, he was head of the Vincent de Paul for an extended period he has quite um, very interesting um, observations which are somewhat at odds with the with the clerical um, uh, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the with the clerical interventions, I think he counsels against placing religious in charge of mother and baby homes, for example, because nobody would go into them if if um, if religious were in charge. But uh, uh, we, we know different uh, now. But I mean, there are these uh, quite um, uh, interesting and resonant uh, debates. And I think, uh, I think, as I, I mentioned, in terms of thinking about imagined futures, uh, these, the future was being very concretely and tangibly uh, being uh, created, really, uh, and planned in uh, the pages of, uh, of, 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 of that particular journal and a number of others as well at the time. But in terms of women's experience, for instance, I mean, you're saying of violence say, against women, that's, that would be unlikely to find its way into the Bureau of Military History uh, archive, which after all was being collected in 40s and 51, up to that sort of period, looking back. Yes. So it's, the testimony yes. is 30 years old anyway. That's right. I'm, think, reminded here of um, a, a pension application from, uh, again, another Galway woman, uh, um, from um, Athen Rye, uh, she was um, uh, uh, married as, as Mrs. Nelly uh, again in Gort, but she spoke about uh, being at my old in 1916, and there's a reference there. Something happened. She is there with a lot of others, but um, you just wonder because she went home. Something happened, and I went home. So, uh, how do you read that? Uh, 
uh, in a letter that was uh, communicated uh, 30 years later when she was justifying her application for, for a pension and the something that happened, uh, her abandonment of uh, the, the, her, her station, as it were, in, um, in 1916, in my old, was possibly what was yeah. denied. Did I also pick up pension. from what you were saying that there was too much in our history of sort of ambushes and the physical force violence, and there's so much more. There are many other layers that we need to be exploring. Yeah, well, I was trying to make a case uh, for revisiting some of the uh, mass mobilizations, whether they were um, relating to labor or to agrarian um, struggle. Um, in, specifically in the years that we're, we're talking about, there's the movement uh, from the West, uh, where such movements often emanated in the previous decades, the um, land seizures around 1920, uh, which uh, created a response in, on the part of the um, emerging state, which was uh, quite um, uh, quite um, uh, uh, determined that this must be uh, that this must be stopped because it was creating divisions <coughs> among the nationalist people, essentially class divisions in uh, within agriculture, I suppose. And Margaret O'Callaghan, partition itself, which came in just. Can I just pick up yes, on that? Yes. There? Uh, you talk about the Irish ecclesiastical record. Yeah. Well, I suppose one of the things published there were the quarterly statements of bishops and archbishops during that period. So if we want to try and approach what's thinking about women, one of the ways to look at it is to look at their statements and public pronouncements from L the early 20s onwards. Astros, yeah. And it's quite interesting that, first of all, in 19... 19 and 1920, they're condemning violence. Every individual act of violence is an act of violence. By 1921-22, they're retrospectively sanctioning that which they had formerly condemned. But by about 23-24, they're expressing all this anxiety about a lack of moral probity, a collapse in moral values. Uh, 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 and it's mostly focused upon analysing the sexual behaviour of women. Yeah. So, so if your I daughter think we need to creatively, the, I think we need can, to creatively yeah. read these sources, I suppose, mm. and I, look at those sermons and say, what are they really about? You know, they're kind of about violence. Then during the Civil War, they say violence is a degenerating malaise that's yeah. come upon. I can remember yeah. just one phrase from a Lenten pastoral, I've forgotten the bishop, but if your daughter comes home late from a dance, lay the lash upon her back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. mm. What he said was, he said, if your daughter is home late, leave the lash upon her back. It was the old way and the good way. And they, the, the other important part about that is, if you want the reflection, was that as you can the Irish newspapers, uh, is they, there was a kind of a hierarchy of, of, uh, of Linton pastorals. They were all published. Uh -huh. At great length and, 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 and in great detail. Length, yes. and, uh, uh, Dr. Michael Brown, Bishop Goldwyn, as a moral theologian, would very often lead off the week. And it's uh, in one of his that you have that phrase uh, about lead the lash upon her back. And, uh, yeah. I think, uh, so how many questions then, how many layers have we opened up today? Gender, class, uh, and land. They're very, very big issues, and they remain a lot of work for scholars to continue doing. Isn't that the case? Katrina, are you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, as an archivist, 
this is all grist to our mill, or should be, uh, the, the more that, that archives can be made available that people can consult. And I'd like to make a little bit of a protest for the, the, in defense of the Bureau of Military History, because one of the interesting things they did, and you made the point, John, and you're perfectly right, they are some decades after the events they're describing and therefore have to be treated with caution. But one of the things they asked people to do is ask them about their ideology. How did they get involved in the nationalist movement in the first place? All of that is fascinating information that isn't to do with ambushes and uh, shootings and all the rest of it. There's a lot more to the Bureau and particularly to the pensions files than, than simply the accounts of engagements that took place. It really is a question of how you interrogate the material. A lot of it is online now, which means you can search it in all kinds of different ways, and that allows for endless, I think, interrogation. There is, I, I always describe the pensions files as a sort of shadow social history of a certain part of Ireland uh, during the 20s, 30s, and 40s, because you get details of poverty and ill health and all of those things that don't come to us in any other way. Yeah. So I think they're very useful. That does not in any way mean that the, the land records aren't badly needed. They really, really are. Nor does it mean that exploration of the local newspapers uh, is not a fantastic endeavor and far easier now that they have been digitized, that you can search those in a way that you yes. wouldn't before. Some of those local journalists were, they were sometimes known as penny aligners from, from Condra. Yeah. This was because they were paid a penny a line. So that's why they wrote at such great length and gave detailed ex uh, exposition. There were many times they were stenographers rather than reporters, but that is now to our advantage since yes. we have the record. Oh, I do think that there is a, there are huge omissions that we haven't gone near yet. Uh, for example, the whole history of what I would like to say the people in the cottages. And if you look no more than it isn't just the bishops who were uh, suggesting that the society was falling apart and it was mostly on a, on a base of sexuality. There was a very strong uh, support in parishes and from voluntary organisations and others who were supporting uh, very, very much this, this notion. And when you actually look at the newspaper accounts, it's directed against the, the people who are the, 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 lower, lower, the lower income people, people who are some casually employed. And you have the phrase again and again. And it, it, it's a very interesting lesson for Ireland in the present time. Uh, about its inability, for example, uh, to, to even achieve the notion that, uh, of an equality in relation to, to housing. It is about the phrases that were used about the people in the cottages. And, and it, it, but one thing, and not to just be pessimistic about it, uh, isn't it, uh, you might well ask, historians might well like to investigate, at what point in Ireland do we decide that building large housing estates was somehow or another the wrong thing to do. Uh, it is to the great credit of that, that I think that 50,000 labourers' cottages were built mm -hmm. uh, between the, the 1880s and, and 1920. Then you move on to the urban housing and, and so forth. And this is what you don't really hear, is that these people were deeply committed to education and to making the country work. Mm -hmm. And they actually, they're very, no more than, as I said, the graziers capturing the renting of the land. Another class in Ireland had captured the professions. And it is the people who actually came through this public housing and so forth, getting the right to have education for the first time, or going into the professions. So the, the, the class uh, element in it is quite, uh, the, the, the omissions are very serious. Right. Can I 
finally ask you then, President Markhnov, its next phase. Well, we will publish the proceedings of the first three now, if it, and uh, it will include the discussion that came after in each case of Markhnov 1, 2, 3. And Markhnov 4 uh, is organised. It will deal with settlement systems and civil strife. Uh, uh, Professor Dermot Ferreter, Professor Mary Daly, Professor Fagel McGarry, Dr. Dahi O'Coron, uh, Dr. Margaret O'Kelleher in November. And then I hope to have two uh, next year. So that will be six in all. And the two next year, will, I think that the next one will probably very much deal with the Civil War, deal with the, the, that period. And then as I go into next year, really the formation of the, the states that emerged afterwards. And uh, so we have three completed, we will, another one in November, and two next year. Thank you very much. And my hope, this is the next three, we will have audiences and we'll be able to be post, out of our post COVID. cloud of restrictions. Well, may I thank you, President, for the invitation to chair. And also, um, thanks to our speakers today, to John Cunningham, Linda Connolly, Margaret O'Callaghan, of course, Katrina Crow and Katrina Clear. And that concludes our discussion today and the third session of Mocknip 100. I hope that you found it stimulating and thought-provoking. The President is on record as believing that the latter years of the decade of centenaries encompassing the treaty divide, civil war and the embedding of partition will prove among the most challenging of this decade of centenaries. And it is these centenaries which fall next, of course, in the calendar. And the next seminar in this Machnev 100 series will take place in November. It's entitled, as we've heard, Settlements, Schisms and Civil Strife. It include contributions from Dermot Ferreter, Mary Daly, Fergal McGarry, Dahio Coroin, Margaret O'Kelleher. Please join us then. Further details of how to watch will be available closer to the date on the President's website, president.ie, and on rte.ie. Indeed, all three Mocknub 100 sessions are available on these platforms, president.ie and the RTE player. Thank you for joining us at this session, which came to you from Orison Upton.